Just the good old boys. Never meaning no harm. Beats all you ever saw. Been in trouble with the law since the day they was born. Straightening the curves. Flattening the hills. It's very nice, though. Someday the mountain might get them, but the law never will. You want to join in? Making their way. The only way they know how. That's just a little bit more than the law will allow. I can't believe you're not joining in. Just two good old boys. It wouldn't change if they could. Been fighting the system like a true modern day Robin Hood. Yeah! You know that's staying in the show somewhere. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't have joined in if I'd known. The safest thing to do, Mum, is just not talk. Yeah, I'm learning that. Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Clark Kent has a job. I just want to go on a date. Faulty metaphor. Kryptonite kills. You're assuming I met the green kryptonite. I was referring, of course, to the red kryptonite, which drains Superman of his powers. Wrong. The gold kryptonite's power sucker. The red kryptonite mutates Superman in some sort of weird... Guys, reality... Besides, I can just tell something's wrong. My spider sense is tingling. Your spider sense? Oh, stay behind and put around in the back cave with crusty old Alfred here. Ah, uh, no, I am no Alfred, so I no, forget Alfred had a job. But gee, Mr. White, if Clark and Lois get all the good stories, I'll never be a good reporter. Jimmy also jumps so pretty much made me last time. Sorry. Avengers Assemble, let's get it going. Hey, kids, comics! Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome to episode four... Of Happy Birthday Superman, which is episode something or other of volume two. I have no idea anymore what episode numbers we are. Okay. Because I've, I've stopped I counting. I we stopped doing episode numbers. We just, we're just doing them. We're just throwing <laughs> yeah. them out of the fight. Well, listen to them in any order you wish. Uh, well, listening to Happy Birthday Superman in the different order may be a bit confusing. There's nothing stopping you doing that, I don't suppose. Mm. If you want to listen to the 70s before you listen to the 30s, 40s, whatever. Go back in time and see how he's reprogressed. Yeah. <laughs> regressed, <Yeah>. not reprogressed. <laughs> what have you done? Metaphor to copy of him. <laughs> oh dear, he's Michael Leyland, and he's Andrew Leyland, and he's not my dad. No, I'm oh. your dad. Yes, and that's how this show works. Do you want to start again? No, no, no. I like that because sometimes people, new people, will tune in. I hope new people tune in. And you just confuse them now. And um, sometimes they have, we have had emails from people saying it was 400 episodes before I realised he was your son. Yeah. And I have this idea that people just thought I just pulled you in off the street. Said, <laughs> <laughs> so do a comic book podcast with me, damn it! And you went okay. We'll do anything for food. I didn't think you meant this. <laughs> Yeah, you thought I was going to have you digging trenches in the garden <laughs> and stuff. Instead, I just got you reading old comics, and you're like, oh, man. Yes, five five shiny comics of shiny goodness this very night. And for the first time mm-hmm. since we started doing Happy Birthday Superman, I actually have issues. They're not all just from trade paperbacks and, and graphic so novels. Hear yes, here, listen. That's the actual issues, and unusually for me, they're all in bags and boards. It's not that unusual. It's 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 a bit unusual when you consider how many comics I've got versus how many are in bags. Fair enough. Which isn't many at all, really, is it? I've got all my issue ones in bags. 
Except for Animal Man and Swamp Thing, which all of them are in bags. Why do you like Animal Man and Swamp Thing? They're my prize ones. Are they? Yeah. Very good. Okay, um, I don't think we have any pre- preamble this week, do we? No. We've not done anything interesting. I've been a taxi cab all week. Have you? Yeah. Ferrying your sister to and from. All oh, right, I thought you were actually a taxi cab. What, you're, like I'm a transformer. <laughs> you have to hand in your driver's license and just taxi. drive terribly all over the place. Yeah, I have to just drive badly. Yeah. Pull over wherever I want to pull over. Completely forget that I've got indicators because apparently they're for lesser men. Mm. Uh, park opposite junctions. Park opposite. Double park anywhere I want. Uh, just pull over purely at random. All these things that taxis do. Yeah, I can do now. Okay. Okay. Our first email tonight. We have three emails tonight. All of them are very good. One of them is very long. Mm. Guess who you can see if you can guess who the very long ones off. <laughs> Yay! Prize for the pretty blonde in the car. Our first email is indeed from Michael Bailey. Hey, Michael. Hey, you. Uh, do you not say hey, Michael? That just confuse you. That was just not as confusing people because I'm also Michael. Bailey. That is very true. But and hey, it's Michael. called shockingly overdue email. Hey there to my mates from a country that we used to be a collection of colonies from, but then decided, screw it, we're going to run this place how we want to run it, leading to a couple of wars, but ultimately an alliance that is just freaking awesome. Abraham Lincoln was something to do with that. Was it? Yeah, it was on the news last week. During the Civil War, this, as you well know, where we live was a a huge cotton industry, and the cotton came from the South. I wish I was in the land of cotton. Look away, look away, look away, Dixieland. What is Dixie? It's the horn from the Dukes of Hazard. But anyway, that's a completely tangential topic. And during the Civil War, the Lancashire cotton pickers um, supported Lincoln in something to do with abolishing slavery. I didn't quite get the radio story. You remember hearing this on the radio, don't you? It was Simon Mayo's interview with Steven Spielberg. Yeah. And um, there is a statue of Abraham Lincoln in Deansgate in Manchester because of it. Yes. And he wrote that letter to the Lancashire cotton pickers. It was on the TV. It was on the TV as well, but we heard it on the radio first. It showed you the statue. And it showed you the statue that we've never actually seen, despite the fact we go to Dean's Gate all the time. It was almost melted down during the war. Yes, it was almost melted down during World War II when um, whatever it was made out of, was it bronze or something? Was was valuable and it almost got melted down. But yes, some heavy metal band. So there you go. So Abraham Lincoln was something to do with the the alliance. The, the Union. Well, it was something to do with the Union, obviously. Yeah. Moving on, insert the few minutes it'll take to talk about this before getting to the email. <laughs> I don't like that it did as well. <laughs> That's very funny. Apologies at the top for not emailing in so long. Unlike the Rolling Stones, time has not been on my side. I've been listening, though, every week, eagerly. It's one of the things that makes me look forward to Thursdays. Anyway, catching up time. I never could get the hang of Thursdays. Mm. Your coverage of Prodigal was very good. You all made some good points about how the story flowed. It had been a long time since I'd read the whole thing, so I'd forgotten a good number of what you talked about. I always added in my head that the whole thing was about Two-Face, but you have reminded me otherwise. In all honesty, the most memorable moment of that story, outside the conversation between Dick and Tim about laundry that's now become the source of much comedy, is the scene where Tim gets his own back with the 90s-era jackasses. The image of him kneeing that one guy in the nuts still makes me laugh, because basically this highly trained fighting machine opened with a kick to the balls. Awesome. So don't think that people didn't like your prodigal talk, as you mentioned in your A vs. X episode. Thanks, Mike. Well, I hope people liked it, because I like prodigal a great deal. Speaking of, continues Michael, Avengers vs. X-Men. I did not read this as it came out, and in all honesty, I probably still won't read it. However, your coverage did make it sound a lot better than I thought it would be, so bravo on that. Thank you very much. I think that's a compliment. Yeah. 
Uh, Hellblazer is one of those books that I always intended to check out and I just never got around to it. I feel bad for fans of the character, especially the heartfelt email by Ben Rush. The closest thing I would ever come to having a similar experience with the character would be Kyle Rayner, as I followed him from his first appearance all the way to the end of that particular volume of Green Lantern. It's different, though, because Kyle is part of something that, in turn, is part of the larger DCU. From the way you all talked about Hellblazer, while it had a place in the world of Vertigo, it it seemed fairly self-contained. It's never easy saying goodbye, and I feel bad that so many John fans have had to do so. Again, I'm working a relative position of ignorance and I'm relying on both Andy and Michael to paint the mental picture for me. Luckily, I'm in the hands of two veteran. You guys have lasted more than a year, so you're veterans at this point, podcasters. So is that the criteria? Yeah, you used to do it for longer than We've done year. it more than a year, so now we're veterans. Can we be like, can we then be accused of a crime that we didn't commit and escape to the Los Angeles underground? Seems where like a lot of effort, though. Where we, we help people, and if people have a problem, if no one else can help, they, can, if they can find hire us. us to talk about their comic books. Yeah. <laughs> It does seem like a lot of effort, though, doesn't it? it? To go to, just to become a soldier of fortune. There'll be people in Starbucks, you know, with their Apple Macs openly (laughs) out there writing the scripts and asking us to talk about it for them. We could write it ourselves. We could. We should do that. Yes. Um, Anyway, uh, at the end of the day, you two made me want to read these books for myself. I don't know when I will ever get the chance to do so, but the desire is there. Now, happy birthday, Superman. To say that I've been looking forward to this episode is a massive understatement. I think it's an open secret that I love me some Superman, and to hear my favourite podcast talk about the character that has had me excited since Andy told me that you are all going to devote a chunk of episodes to the Man of Steel. I'm very pleased to say that your first instalment did not disappoint. Thank you very much. Oh, do you know what I wanted to say about this? Remember last week we were discussing, do you think anyone can ever listen to an episode when we upload it on the Thursday? Yeah. And then get an email to us before we record on Thursday night? Yes. Michael almost managed it last week this came in this email that I'm reading now came in just after we recorded last week's episode so he almost managed it so still not there yet so kudos on that I'm very impressed with that so he hadn't even heard that yet yeah. When he did this. In fact, he hasn't heard it as we record this. He inadvertently this, did it. But he inadvertently managed to do what we talked about just before he did it. Yeah. Which is wibbly-wobbly. Mm. Timey-wimey, as usual. Uh, Michael's emails continues. Before I go any further, I have to mention two specific moments from the episode that had me laughing out loud. The first was during the Action Comics issue 23 talk when Andy called Luther greatest criminal mind of our time. Of our time. At that moment, I was listening to the episode as I cleaned the kitchen and I stopped dead to echo... <laughs> just as Otis did in Superman the movie apparently Michael and I share a similar sense of humour because he said it on the show as I was saying it aloud to no one save my dog who looked very confused when I started laughing <laughs> comedy gold yeah. comedy always get a laugh <laughs> by quoting Superman the movie or any of the Superman movies because yeah. you know I can't have anyone with me who it isn't was, with me well I suppose you could just laugh at four I've said it before, <laughs> I will say it again, Superman 4 has all the elements in it that you want to see from a Superman movie. But sadly, there Scott is Gardner Superman said 4. that, and I totally agree with it, and I said pretty much the same thing when we talked about Superman 4. Okay. It's got, in punching the crap out of somebody of equal power level, yeah. which we yeah. want to see in a Superman movie. Oh, yeah. It's got him all around the world in this knockdown drag out fight that we want to see in a Superman movie. Mm-hmm. He talks different languages to people as a citizen of the Earth. Which we like seeing in a Superman movie. Okay. It's a shame that a lot of it's in Superman 4, but <laughs> the elements are all there. I oh, mean, oh, yeah. I'll take away all your nuclear weapons. Oh, we just weren't ready to I'm have our nuclear weapons taken away. That the premise of the movie is not flawed. <laughs> 
I am merely saying that there is a lot in Superman 4 that if it had been handled better, I think that film would be better than Superman 3 easily. It's just a shame that it wasn't. It was bargain yeah. investment in the budget department, which is a shame. Christopher Reeve's still good, isn't it? Even though he looks a bit skinny. Mm. Maybe he wasn't, you know, yeah. working out. Very good. That's a super. Did you get that? Uh, excellent. Well done. Uh, the email continues. The second laugh out loud moment happened towards the end of the episode when Andy said that the Golden Age Superman was given a happy ending. I had no idea he'd visited that somewhat legitimate massage parlour at the edge of Metropolis. Good for him. Oh, that poor girl stood back when it happened. No, she took the back of his over uh, her head off. I'm oh, sure I read that in a Angela just groaned audibly at that. I'm sorry, babe. I he set me up. All I did was, was follow, follow... Knock her exact him on. I just, I, he set him up, Michael Bailey. I knocked him down. I, have I, you I, ever read the pro by Garth Ennis? Yes, yeah, I have read the pro by Garth Ennis. Not one of Ennis's better works. No. I felt. It really wasn't. No. Like Andy, continues uh, Michael, I have a real love for the golden age of Superman. As I mentioned on numerous podcasts that I have hosted, co-hosted, and or appeared on over the years, Views from the Long Box, From Crisis to Crisis, Tales of the JSA, Radio KL Live, etc. Oh, and Back to the Bins and Comics Monthly Monday. Yeah. Let's, let's... Keep it in the family, let's though. Let's not forget about Back to the Bins, because we don't know how not, much you uh, let's not forget, We can't forget about Back to the Bins. It is an awesome show. My first exposure to the comic book adventures of Superman came via a copy of Superman from the 30s to the 70s that was in the Furview Elementary School Library. Not only did this give me my first history lesson regarding the Man of Steel, thanks to E. Nelson Bridwell's amazing introduction, but it also allowed a young, impressionable Mikey Mike B to read the earliest adventures of Superman. I'm convinced that the reason I ended up accepting that there are different versions of the same character came from that book and the Batman volume of the same name. Mine came from the film and me famous Superman 1979 annual because mm. I'd read the comic and saw the film and I was like this is two completely different versions of Superman I am okay with that <laughs> and thus I've never had a problem with the fact that Superboy appeared out of nowhere mm. and then he was Golden Age Superman where he threw people out of windows but then he was Silver Age Superman where he was basically a lollipop man yeah. wasn't he helping kids across the road and then he was Bronze Age Superman where he was a newscaster mm. he was Hugh Edwards was he? he was the Hugh Edwards of his day and Susanna Reid can be Lois Lane, because that would totally yeah. work, wouldn't it? Yeah. Susanna Reid would make a good Lois Lane. Susanna Reid is a, a British newsreader, if you want to look her up on Google. She would make an excellent Lois Lane. Okay. She occasionally has to sit at a funny angle, because the way the camera works on BBC News and the way she sits on that sofa, if she's wearing a skirt that's a little bit too short, you could be, you know... It doesn't matter how much she's hiding behind that table. No. Well, they don't have a table anymore. It's just the sofa, isn't it? Or is the sofa high? Yeah, something like that. Anyway, we're, we're getting on to the subject of Susanna Reid, which yeah. has nothing to do with Superman. Michael's email continues. As the years have progressed and my obsession with Superman has grown from a pleasant hobby into a borderline personality disorder... <laughs> We don't know anything about that, Mike. I have come to love and respect Superman's early years. There is something raw about those early stories, and like Andy, I like that this Superman just doesn't take any crap off of anybody. Yes, his methods are extreme, but it was an extreme time. The character was created not only to serve as some good old-fashioned wish fulfilment on the part of his creators, but also as a reaction to one of the worst economic climates in recent history. So these stories have a lot of power to them, and while some can be damn silly, others are just freaking awesome on a very visceral level. This is a Superman that's had quite enough of your... 
The stories you chose are all favourites of mine, and oddly, I have all the different reprints you pulled them from. I managed to snag the first Superman Archives volume for ten bucks at a used bookstore and devoured the whole thing soon after finding it in 1998. Oddly enough, this was right around the time that the Superman titles were introducing the God love them for trying, but man, that was a bad idea, Superman of America. So seeing the ad for the original version of that in the archives gave me one of those, oh, so that's where that comes from moments. Quite literally, the first story you covered was the first Superman story I ever read, and I love the fact that Superman number one has one of the first director's cut of a comic story. Apologies to Andy, because I know he hates when comics are referred to in the same manner as movies, and annoyance, I sure, except for in this instance. Do you know, I hadn't considered that, but he's right, isn't he? Yeah. That is that would be called a director's cut nowadays, wouldn't it? Mm. The action comics started six pages in, and then they put those six extra pages on and flashed out the story. Because mm. I don't think it works as well without those six extra pages. Yeah. Suddenly you're just thrust into the, this Superman's just kidnapped this poor woman. So, uh, first opinion. Yeah, and you're like, that's a bit odd. Yeah. But then with those extra six pages, you realise that said woman was a femme fatale. Yeah. So that's perfectly okay. To kidnap a femme fatale against her will. And take her to jail and tie her up. And threaten her. With a kidnapping bondage in a Superman comic, yeah? (laughs) I had no idea that Action Comics number one, the first one, started halfway through the story that would see print in Superman number one, the first one. This led to some confusion in 1988 when I got my hands on a reprint of Action One and saw that some of the story was missing. This would eventually be cleared up, but man, did that throw my 12 year old self for a loop. The Iron Story is another favourite of mine, mainly because it is Superman using his powers to mess with the upper-class business and socialite types that are usually portrayed as the bad guys, or at the very least the antagonists in these stories. You can see why Superman would be horrified when the owner not only blamed the injured man for being injured, but seemed to think he was doing the now-crippled worker a solid by paying some of his medical bills. Uh, This made the moment where Superman just sits back and makes the fat cats dig their own way out that much more powerful. I never thought of the owner as having a Scrooge moment until Andy mentioned it, and that made the story even better for me. The first appearance of Lex Luthor was a hoot. I covered that story with John Wilson on his Golden Age Superman podcast, and I agree with Andrew that it was a turning point for Superman. At the same time, I would argue that the first appearance of the Ultra-Humanite in Action Comics issue 13 was the first real shot across the bow at taking Superman from the champion of the weak and the oppressed to upping the stakes and giving him a more suitable challenge. I love the idea of a Superman fighting gangsters, which is why I adore the George Reeves series so much, but at the same time, if you're going to up his power level, you almost have to up the threats he faces. Luther's initial characterisation and physical appearance bear little resemblance to the character we have today, but at the same time, you can see why this character was brought back. The imaginary story brought back a lot of happy memories from reading from the 30s to the 70s as a kid. I was always puzzled by that particular story, but years later when my sister Murray gave me a VHS tape featuring three of the flacious Superman shorts, everything fell into place. It was awesome to finally see the cartoon that inspired the story I'd read so many times. Sure, it's silly, but more than that, it's fun. It was a lot of fun. We liked that imaginary story a great deal, didn't we? Yes. Do you remember it? I do, actually. Excellent, well done. While I will agree about the comments Andy made about Infinite Crisis, I have to, well, take issue seems to suggest I'm angry or annoyed about something, which I'm not. It concerns the Earth 2 Superman. Andy's wonderful closing monologue makes it seem like the Golden Age Superman lived on through the use of Earth 2, and that is something I've always disagreed with. Whilst the Earth 2 Superman is a version of Superman that was in his prime during the Golden Age, I see the Golden Age Superman, as in the Superman that existed from 1938 to the middle 50s, as a separate character than the Earth 2 Superman. Admittedly, this is an amazing example of me being a picky, picky man, but the fact that the majority of the Golden Age stories had Clark working at the Daily Planet under Perry White, while the Earth 2 Superman always worked for the Daily Star and was hired by George Taylor, suggests to me, anyway, that these are two different people with a common background. 
I love the Earth 2 Superman and the S George Perez drew from during the crisis. It's one of my favourite versions of the most iconic symbol in fiction, but I can never look at him as the true Golden Age Superman. He's a great character, but he's not the original. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm. My, my closing monologue, and I appreciate you, you commenting on it, um, was, was for brevity. My personal opinion is, A, I agree with you wholeheartedly, Michael, and B, I would even go so far to say that the original Superman, the one that debuted in 1938, disappeared around 1940, 1941, and has never been seen again. Okay. The Earth 2 Superman is very much the later Golden Age Superman, with the caveat that he never stopped working for the Daily Star. Yeah. But that original Superman of the first year or so of his adventures, we've never seen that guy again mm. after those first two years, in my opinion. And I would love to see him again. There are many, many people at the moment that I would love him to champion. I don't know if I explained that well enough. Hopefully it made sense. It made perfect sense, Michael. Anyway, my final note is about the scoring. I love the use of music from the 50s television series throughout the episode. Good job, Andy. That's it for this time, fellas. Thanks for producing a great episode, and I look forward to the next installment. Cheers, Mikey Mike B. Thank you very much, Michael. We appreciated your email. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't mind saying I put a lot of effort into that first episode. So thank you for appreciating it. You don't mind saying you put a lot in there. Uh, We've... I've been reading nothing but Superman since November, pretty much. Okay. No lying. Thanks, love. <laughs> and I'm still doing it. Mm. I've got piles of new comics, haven't I, that have just kept piling up. Yeah. Because I'm like, no, I'm reading this era of Superman now. Mm. And now I'm... Because re- I'm currently into the noughties. But then it's, ooh, Batman. Ooh, Batman. Well, we'll think about Batman next year when it's his 75th. Yes. Because we'll have to approach that slightly differently from this, won't we? Because mm. I have zero affinity for Batman circa the 60s and the 70s. Although, we have to cover Castle with wall-to-wall danger. Okay. Which was another one of the earliest Batman stories still, I've ever read. We still have to cover every decade. Do we? we can't skip Are we doing Batman the anymore. same thing? Yeah. 30s, 40s, you 50s. can't skip But I don't have the suit, the Batman in the trades. I've only got Batman in the 80s. Well, you've got birthday and Christmas in between then. I'd, want, I'd have to have Batman <laughs> in the 40s, Batman in the 50s, Batman in the 60s, and Batman in the 70s. Well, I don't need Batman in the 70s because I've got most of the comics, but... Mm. That's that's what I need those trades. Make it so number one. <laughs> okay, with all that money I got. With all that money that you've got, yeah. <laughs> Our next email is from J. David Weeter. Hi, J. David. Hello. It's entitled Superman Wimp, which I don't think was the sequel to Superman for the Quest for Peace. <laughs> I don't think it was. Superman Five Wimp. Well, I would, Lois, but uh... <laughs> but uh, I'm feeling a little down today. Uh, Dear lovely Leyland's both senior and mildly less senior. As I type this, I type with love of your show and my good friends across the pond. Andrew's adoration of Superman brings a smile to my face and his love for the character is pure and clear. Just check out his tattoo. He's a tried and true member of the club. But I must disagree with the assertion that the new 52 Superman is a wimp. It's simply not so. I will concede that the eponymous title has seen some instability in his characterization of the Man of Steel under the pens of George Perez and Dan Jurgens, two creators that I hold in high regard. Scott Lobdell has put the testicles back into the blue and red costume. So far in his own, Superman has been pre- bench-pressed the equivalent of planets, plural intended, and he's also taken on a dragon-like creature bigger than a skyscraper, and one that knocked him from Metropolis to Europe. Whilst Grant Morrison's take has waffled, we have a Superman that is finding his way and has no real idea just how powerful he is. I confess, I balked at Scott Lobdell writing Superman. I fully expected a big steaming pile of dewback dung, but I have been pleasantly surprised, and Kenneth Rockefeller... 
Well, if Kenneth wanted to draw the entire DCU, that would be all right with me. While Dandy Dio and his five-year timeline is a load of lies, and the new 52 was probably planned in an afternoon rather than the years we are meant to believe, Superman is exciting again in a way that he hasn't been since around 2006, and he's more confident and in control than I have seen him since then. If Superman left you wanting, prior to Lobdell and Rockerfoot, I ask that you give it a second look, because, and I never thought that there would be a day that these words would come from my brain, Lobdell gets Superman. And he even gave Clark Kent persona some edge when he stood up to Morgan Edge and yelled out that he still believes in truth, justice, and the American way. Words that Superman has been scared to say for the last decade or so. So Superman's been a bit lopsided and undercooked for a while, but the turkey is done and he's awesome once again, and not a wimp. I am J. David Wheater, Superman apologist indoctrinated by the Reverend Michael Bailey, and this is my message. Keep on fighting the never-ending battle and keep on making a top-shelf show. Sincerely, J. David Wheater. P.S. Darkseid asked me to send a message your way. Don't shoot the messenger. We have to listen to the message from Darkseid. But first, alright, David, mm-hmm. you have convinced me to check out Hell on Earth. Keel on Earth. Is that what it is? I don't know, that's how I've been pronouncing it. Or is it not? Hell on Earth. I will give <laughs> Hell, Unlun, Hell on Earth a go. But yes, I have been grossly disappointed by the new 52 Superman. I, I think action's where it's at. You, 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 waffle are you? I wouldn't you say... have done nothing but vacillate on Morrison's Superman run. No. Occasionally you'll come downstairs and go, that was a great issue. And then next month you'll come down and go, that one was crap, Dad. The thing, the thing with Action Comics is, okay. it started off as a Superman comic. There was nothing in there that made a Morrison comic. Now, because... That might be okay with some, but I'm going into an action comics reading the Grant Morrison comic. See, that's the thing. We will discuss All-Star Superman when we get into the noughties. Yeah. I think All-Star Superman is the best thing Morrison's written in terms of straight superheroes because it's a superhero comic yeah. that is secondly written by Grant Morrison. But... Not a Grant Morrison comic that has Superman yeah. in it. But because the the beginning segment of Action Comics is just a straightforward Superman comic. Which is when I was enjoying until it. Until we get to around issues five and six. When I thought it started going crap. Where it's a Morrison comic, and that's where it started getting good. And I think <laughs> as, you see that we're on opposite sides yeah. of the fence here. And as an entire run, I think it's a really good Morrison story. Yeah, well, you which, see, you can't say that until you've read the entire run. I know, if the last issue, the new last issue. Yeah, because he's... Doing an extra one. Yeah, if that comes out now and it's all crap. Mm. In addition, I have to confess, I, I found the George Perez and Dan Jurgens, uh, again, two creators, I agree with you, David, that I hold in high esteem, I found them boring. Yeah. I found them deadly dull. And it, But it's not just the stories, it's the aesthetics. I, I don't like that costume. I've yeah. given it, what are we at now, 18 months? Mm. It's had a year and a half to grow on me. I still think it looks like ass. Yeah. It doesn't look... I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. I don't, it doesn't look any good. I don't like it. Yeah. It doesn't look like Superman's costume. You've got all the obvious complaints that everyone's made. Why has he got tons of lines on it? Why does he need armour? Yada, 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 yada. Yeah, whatever. But the bottom line is, I've got Superman 233 in my hand here. That's what Superman looks like to me. Yeah. And we don't have a current action comics to hand at the minute, but he doesn't look like Superman. Mm. And it's not... I'm not resistant to change. I know there are people out there now laughing at that idea, but I like Spider-Man's black and white costume. Yeah. I even got used to the Iron Spider costume in the story that they were telling. Yeah. It worked for that storyline. I liked the 2099 costume. That grew on me as well. 
I've not like I didn't mind it when they changed the S to be red and black instead of red and yellow. Yeah. I thought that was a nice that was a nice looking effect. I I don't like this costume. He doesn't look like Superman. It's not grown on me. None of the stills I've seen from Man of Steel are making me go, "Hey, look, it's Superman." To be honest, I think it looks worse live action. Well, to be fair, let's give him benefit of the doubt. We mm. haven't seen it in live action yet. Yeah, we've seen a couple of stills and the first trailer. And to be fair, the, tr- the second trailer looked all right, mm. even though we didn't see a lot of Superman in it. And from Is the that waist the one up, maybe he deserved it to die. One, yeah, all right. The, from the waist up, yeah, it looks all right until you get to the underwear. But the midriff just looks wrong. Now I'm down with them. Yeah, I'm down with them removing the underwear. Mm. If only to get rid of that boring joke about he wears his underpants on the other side of his pants. And they always say it as if they're the first person to make that joke. Yeah. Don't they? Oh, wow, you're funny. <laughs> the best thing to do with people like this is go, what? And make them explain it to you. Like, and then go, do you know I've never noticed? Yeah. Does he really? I've never twigged that. But the, the one with the new stuff is because they removed well the underpants it's they look boring they used to like they're wearing a jumpsuit yeah it doesn't and ba- ba- both Batman and Superman they've done that too and they both look boring Batman pulls it off better because he's covered in a cape and he's he's basically all black anyway now the days of the black and the well, grey and the blue has gone I'm, I'm pretty sure his grey is a lot lighter now in the Batman title itself See, following Prodigal, he goes for the all-black bodysuit, doesn't he? Yeah. The all-black armoured suit. And see, that's another thing as well. In Batman Begins, I thought the costume looked like ass in all the stills. I thought it worked in Batman Begins. Mm. I didn't think it worked as well in Dark Knight Rises, but the costume was the least of the problems for Dark yeah. Knight Rises, wasn't it? <laughs> You're not even looking at the costume. No, like. no, it's very... Anyway, we've got a message from Darkseid, dude. So, all right, David, I will give... A go from apocalypse. to hell on earth. But Darkseid has sent us a message. You know, I actually just remembered something in response to that email. Go on. Um, I, I read the Jeff Johns' plans for the Flash series, which he wrote before Rebirth. And they were planning Flashpoint and um, the New 52 around the time Final Crisis was coming out. So why didn't they do it then? 2007. Did why it? didn't they do it then? Because they were planning to do it. His... So his Green Lantern run is what leads into Blackest Night and Brightest Day. So why does it feel so half-baked? The, the delivery. Oh, okay, fair enough. Should we listen to Darkseid? Okay. Let's have a listen to what Darkseid has to say to us. Okay, okay, it's ready. It's ready. It's ready. It's ready. <laughs> it's, now, now, talk. Leland's from across the pond, or across the universe for us. Anywho, let's pick off. 
Had to send us that message. I, I feel very privileged uh, I that Darkside listens to the show. And he even apologised to you for freaking you out at Christmas. Yep. I can't really see Darkside curring that he scared oh, you, really to not. be honest with you. Maybe he's just been polite. Yeah, and I like to he likes so. our podcast that much. He does, yes. And speaking of Paul Spataro, mm-hmm. it's like we plan it. Indeed. It's like we that put nice the show together. The nice that our next email is from. Oh, yeah. If you tell Luke, Jack, and Nettie then. Oh, yeah, that would have been funny, though. <laughs> Leading you down that garden path. Take a curb. <laughs> Paul Spataro has wrote in of Back to the Bins fame. Which, so, as guys, we all know. Which, as we all know, is my favourite show on the Two True Freaks internet radio feed. I just listened to your most recent episode, and I really enjoyed your take on the Golden Age Superman. I think that you hit the difference in his personality from the later incarnations, and it made me miss the original characterization even more. I think that Grant Morrison tried to bring back elements from those books in the recent Action Comics reboot, but although I liked it initially, I quickly tired of his take. I think that it's because he tried to modernise the book by using elements from the original, but making Superman more sensitive. I'm looking forward to the upcoming shows with the later decades. With regard to your discussion about Irredeemable, I would highly recommend the first volume. Of course, as with so many books lately, I can't speak for later volumes since I haven't found time to read them. Lastly, I laughed out loud when you discussed J.R. Jr.'s method of making Steve Rogers look younger by increasing his head size. We discussed that technique recently on Back to the Bins, and I hate it when artists do that. Keep up the great work, guys. Paul. Thank you very much, Paul. We appreciate your email. And it, it flowed perfectly yeah. from, uh, from the message from Darkside, who says hello by the way I don't know if you should be worried about that that yeah. Darkseid wants to say hello to you if I were you Paul I'd be looking out for those nega beams that, that may be you know yeah. that are chasing you down the street <laughs> all the way from Apocalypse just yeah. across the <laughs> all the way through New York yeah. <laughs> oh, I hope it's not too snowy where you are ours is all gone now uh, that's it for emails this week, so if you want to email us in, feel free to do so. The inbox is clear. Mm-hmm. Is it? Yes. Okay. There is no more messages in there at the moment. We await more messages. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and plug somebody's show. Probably. I don't, I don't have a Back to the Bins trailer. Do you not? No. <laughs> Get on that, Paul. Make a Back to the Bins trailer. Oscar or Mike or whoever else you have on that show because he just ropes people make in around. Own. I should make a trailer. Let's go. Back to the Bins is great. I really like it. <laughs> Listen to it. It's on every Friday. There you go. There's, there's the trailer. Well done, Mike. I'm just going to cut that out, put some music under it, send it to him. Sounds great. I think so too. Yeah. We'll be right back. <laughs> it's Megacon from March 15th through the 17th, 2013 at the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida. Megacon is the Southeast's largest comic book, science fiction, fantasy, anime, gaming, toys, multimedia event. 
The showroom has over 110,000 square feet of exhibitor space. Meet your favorite comic book artists, get autographs from your favorite celebrities, enter a costume contest. Visit continuous anime viewing rooms, view the Indie Film Festival, and so much more. You don't want to miss it. One-day tickets are $24.49 in advance, $30 at the door. Or go for all three days for just $58.04 in advance or $60 at the door. I, Scott Gardner, will be there Saturday, March 16th from open to close, wandering the floor in my Two True Freaks t-shirt. Again, that's Megacon, March 15th through the 17th, 2013 at the Orange County Convention Center, Hall D, that's 9800 International Drive, Orlando, Florida. Be there. The Bronze Age of Comics. An era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weeder also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. decade of the 1930s, even the great city of Metropolis was not spared the ravages of the worldwide depression. In the times of fear and confusion, the job of informing the public was the responsibility of the Daily Planet, a great metropolitan newspaper whose reputation for clarity and truth had become a symbol of hope for the city of Metropolis. And we're back. Excellent. Do you want a chocolate biscuit with that? Because <laughs> <laughs> it fits in with what we normally talk about. And we are indeed back. Why do you get a chocolate biscuit? I don't get a chocolate biscuit. I do. He gets a chocolate biscuit. Um, what era are we in? We're in the 70s. Yeah. We're in the 1970s, the decade that style forgot. Apparently, probably like the 70s. The decade that every colour book brown forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, it was nice for brown. As the 60s closed out, Superman editor Mark Weisinger was feeling tired. And it was decided, with Weisinger's retirement, to bring a fresh new look to the Man of Steel's comic book incarnation. At first, a number of different editors, including Murray Boltonoff, E. Nelson Bridwell and Jack King Kirby, were all working on Superman or Superman-type books. But by the early 70s, the Superman family of comics had, by and large, come under the watchful eye of Julius Schwartz. Schwartz was a veteran of comics and of science fiction publishing and had revitalised The Flash, Green Lantern and introduced the new look Batman. So while Superman was far from worn out as some of those characters may have been, giving Schwartz carte blanche to renew the creative teams and characters was a good idea. He published Lovecraft stories. 
He did. When no one else would. He did. And Ray Bradbury stuff as well, back in the early days. The Bronze Age of Comics is generally believed to have begun with Schwartz's first issue as editor, issue number 233, and the changes came fast. In that one issue, Clark was made a TV news anchor and given new suits to move with the times. His sideburns were allowed to be a little longer as well. Continuous new characters would be introduced, such as the Sean Connery-inspired Vartox, Terror Man, and other company knockoffs such as Captain Strong, a Popeye stand-in, and Captain Thunder, a Captain Marvel takeoff. Experiments with formats would take place with new-sized comics, such as 100-page books, and backup strips fleshing out the character and mythology of Clark, Kent, and Krypton. Superman would get a new team-up book, DC Comics Presents, and would meet up with the best and the brightest in Treasury Editions, where he would eventually meet the real Captain Marvel, Wonder Woman, and even his main rival, Marvel Comics flagship character, The Amazing Spider-Man. None of these would compare, however, to a fight to the finish against Muhammad Ali. Clark's life would also be complicated with the introduction of Steve Lombard, a jock sports news presenter who delighted in making Clark's life hell. The joke being, Clark would often use his superpowers to make Steve's practical jokes backfire. Attempts were also made to emphasise Clark's character in the private life of Clark Kent backup, and stories such as the double-or-nothing life of Superman, perhaps in an effort to give the reader a more identifiable protagonist. New writers would breathe life into the Man of Steel with some classic tales, and oddly, a few of those writers would come from Marvel. Contemporary writers like Len Wein would give us the enlargement of the bottle city of Candor in Let My People Grow. Jerry Conway would introduce Solomon Grundy, a foe Superman could go toe-to-toe with, whilst Elliot S. Magin would ask, Must there be a Superman? New inkers such as Murphy Anderson gave Kurt Swan's luscious artwork a new lease of life, whilst more contemporary artists like Neil Adams and José Luis Agacer López would represent a more modern take on the character on covers and in licensing. The strip tackled more and more social causes such as racism in an infamous issue of Lois Lane entitled I Am Curious Black, <laughs> but accusing rock concerts of polluting the minds of young listeners would be a major backfire. In the Jimmy Olsen comic, Jack Kirby would introduce more and more out-there concepts into the Superman mythology, even if the King's wonderfully Kirbyan version of Superman was deemed a little too different by the powers that were, and redrawn. In other media, Elliot S. Magin would pen the second Superman novel, Last Son of Krypton, and on television, the Super Friends would keep Superman in the pop culture vogue throughout the decade. Undeniably, the biggest event yet in the multimedia world of Superman was the December 1978 debut of Superman the Movie. Starring Christopher Reeve as Clark Kent Superman and Margot Kidder as Lois Lane with direction by Richard Donner and a superb score by John Williams, the film quickly became one of Warner Brothers' highest grossing money spinners, as well as setting the template for how to adapt a superhero to film, with both the 2002 Spider-Man and 2005's Batman Begins adaptations following the story structure to the letter. The movie would spawn three sequels, a spin-off movie for Supergirl and a prequel TV series starring Superboy and in lead actor Reeve create for many the definitive live-action screen Superman. Despite the turbulence of the times, the 70s were a good decade to be a Superman fan. But the decade began with an idea. How to make Superman more contemporary. Julius Schwartz was the man tasked with finding the answer, and he did so in fine fettle. Schwartz hired writer Denny O'Neill to update the Man of Steel and bring him more in step with the times. O'Neill had already infused the Batman with a new lease of life and had done the same with Green Lantern and Green Arrow. In both those cases, though, he had either returned the character to their roots... 
Batman was now more Dark Knight detective than he'd been in years, or by giving the characters a much-needed personality infusion. With Superman, a character O'Neill has admitted to having no affinity for, he did neither of these things. Instead, O'Neill would simply drop some of the more outlandish concepts that had been a staple of the Superman legend for a number of years, and basically stealth retool the character. Superman had been stealth retooled before. Mott Weising tended to build the Superman mythology from around 1959 onwards, and seldom referred to events from before then, but these events happened in story. And what events they were. Superman 233, which I have here. Covered 8 January 1971, but on sale around the 5th of November 1970, boasts what has become a simply iconic cover by Neil Adams. Superman busts loose of the symbolic kryptonite chains that keep him in check. The character has arguably never looked so live and bursting with power. The cover has some very large copy stating it's the number one best-selling comics magazine and the amazing new adventures of Superman that could lead the casual reader to believe that this was a number one as the 233 issue number is tiny hidden away in the corner. Kryptonite never more, it states at the bottom. You like Neil Adams, don't you? Sometimes. I like this, Neil Adams. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, it's a great cover, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's iconic. I want a new tied him up with chains, but I always want to know that when I see yeah. Superman chained up. Unless it was Lois. Mm, then it's kryptonite, so... Yes, well, kryptonite has no effect on him, as we see in this story. Mm. Superman Breaks Loose was written by Denny O'Neill, penciled by Kurt Swan and inked by Murphy Anderson. Your copy signed. My copy is signed by Murphy Anderson and Denny O'Neill. But not to you. No, not to me. But, you know. Best to Dale. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that when we get to the notes. Okay. That it's signed. Somebody scribbled on my comic! <laughs> Damn them. They couldn't have done it on the outside. On the inside. They have done it on the inside. Yeah. They couldn't have done it where I could rub it out with tinpacks. <laughs> no, that would be even worse, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Beginning a return to greatness, proclaims the splash. One of those symbolic things where a dark, shadowy reflection of Superman stands unsteadily, as before him shots of Superman being super loom large. There is another side to Superman, the omniscient narrator tells us. A dark side he keeps hidden from both his admirers and the men that hate him. The story begins proper with Superman flying to meet Professor Bolden, who is making a potentially groundbreaking device that could provide cheap electricity for all. The problem? It's powered by kryptonite. The other problem? Bolden can't control the kryptonite chain reaction. However, Superman wasn't a boy scout for nothing and has already prepared a lead-coated shield. Superman swoops in, shielding himself behind the lead, but the kryptonite explodes with such force the shield is whipped from Superman's clutches and he is treated to a full-on kryptonite shower. Fearing the worst, Superman plummets to the floor and passes out on the sandy desert. Bolden and his fellow eggheads rush to the fallen hero, but to everybody's shock, not least Superman's, He's unharmed. As he gets up, nobody notices his imprint that his body has left in the sand. Bolden shows Superman that the kryptonite has turned to iron, even the stuff he kept miles away in the vault. Superman takes to the skies to see if it's the same worldwide. Turns out, it is. And in the Daily Planet, Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane are agog with delight. 
Eggs is head of Galaxy Communications, which now own the Daily Planet, and he fears a Superman with no weaknesses will become corrupt. He's obviously been speaking to Jeff Jones. Edge assigns Clark to cover the launching for the mail rocket as a TV anchorman. Given that Edge now writes the checks, Clark has no choice but to acquiesce. At the launching site, Clark sets up the camera and begins broadcasting about how this will revolutionise mail delivery, unlike email. But with his X-ray vision, spots a man up to no good, starting to make trouble in his neighbourhood. Superman gets into a small fight and the punk gets scared, as Superman celebrates that kryptonite is out of his hair. Actually, the punk says that they're trying to steal the rocket and produces some kryptonite out of his bag rather smugly. Superman eats it. He then slaps the punk, rendering him unconscious. He quickly returns to the camera and, disguised as Clark Kent, finishes his report as the rocket launches. He then quickly dons the Superman suit and chases after the rocket, theorising that the punk's boss didn't make a play for the rocket on land, so he must be doing it in the air. Sure enough, two fighter jets are headed for the rocket. Feeling more confident than ever, the Man of Tomorrow easily withstands the cannon fire, but when he tries to fry the electronics with his heat vision, something goes awry. Unperturbed, he breaks in through the hull and knocks the pilot's heads together. Quickly placing the jet on autopilot, he races after the second jet, quickly taking them down with a swift punch through the cockpit. Miraculously, no one on the ground is any the wiser as to the theft attempt, and Superman tows the fighter away, and catches up with the first he put on autopilot and muses about the incident with the creeped vision. He notes that, by pure coincidence, he's over the area where the green K was eliminated and that he's probably just some lingering after-effects and nothing to worry about, as he flies past the indentation of his body, still left in the sand. The next day at the Daily Planet, Clark is promoted to full-time anchor by Morgan Edge over Perry White's objections, and Clark wonders how this will affect Superman. Whilst over in the desert, the indentation left in the sand slowly coalesces into humanoid form, the form of Superman, and lumbers off towards a terrible destiny. I think I should put some like dramatic musical sting in there. Mm. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun, yeah, that'd work. That'd, that'd work as well. Mm. Uh, the splash page after an advert from Snoopy. Yeah, which we should show you. Sister, she likes a bit of Snoopy, doesn't she? Do the Snoopy dance. No birds allowed. Uh, the splash oh, page. Dog. No dogs allowed. Um, the splash page is excellent. Amidst the regular shots of Superman doing super feats, he's got a shell bouncing off his chest, he's twisting some metal and flying, a lumbering and crouching Superman bathed in darkness but surrounded by an eerie yellow glow stands with his back to us. To be honest, unlike the previous splash pages we've covered on the show, this gives nothing away. Mm-hmm. That's. Would you say that's another cover splash? Or is that. That's more of a tease. Isn't it? No, I'd say it's a cover as well. Would that work as the cover? Yeah. Well, if you got rid of all the text, but kept Superman Bricks loose under it. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose you're right. What, and just put the Superman logo at the top? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it would do. The thing I like about that is in the last one of Superman Flying, that's Kurt Swan doing Wayne Boring. Yeah. I like that. And then as the story goes along, he turns him into Kurt Swan. Or I think he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, page two, O'Neill wastes no time introducing real-world issues into the fictional world of Superman, with mention of the then-current energy crisis on the very first page. O'Neill would incorporate real-world issues and politics into his work on Green Lantern and Green Arrow, Batman and, much later, Daredevil, with varying degrees of success. Well, no, that is jumped straight into the story. I mean, it's, it's panel four on the first page when the 
problem happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's, there's none of this preamble of modern comics. Yeah. None of this uncanny Avengers thing where the entire first issue's the pre-credit sequence. Mm. This starts and just keeps going. And especially when you consider that he's only got 17 pages to tell this story. So, yeah. brevity is the watchword. Uh, panel 4 that Michael just mentioned is an excellent panel. Mm. I thought Bolden is reaching towards us, the reader, as the kryptonite device glows menacingly behind him. It's almost 3D. Swan's done an excellent job, though. The hand really does look like it's reaching out of the panel and going, No! It's all, it's, gone, it's out of control! It's all going to blow! We're all going to die! <laughs> that was the anthill mob, wasn't it? Yeah. Where did that come from? And as Michael says, page three, this is how you begin an issue. Two pages in, and Superman's already witnessed a groundbreaking invention that's gone belly up, been unable to stop it, and been blasted by kryptonite. Which is awesome. At page four, it seems a bit of a stretch to me that just because the kryptonite in the nearby vicinity is all iron, that it should have affected every piece all over the world. Mm. But I presume he does it in between panels. Yeah. Because Superman takes off as if to say, right, I'm going to go and check on this. And then the next day, you've got a Daily Planet headline that says Kryptonite destroyed. What about the Kryptonite in the rest of the universe? Well, he's not really too bothered about that. No. Is he? Because like, it would require somebody to bring it to Earth. And who's going to do that? Yeah. Well, maybe Brainiac. Well, what I don't understand about the, the imprint left in the sand mm-hmm. is that you can see the outline around his like waist and legs. Or you wouldn't be able to because well, because of the cape. Yeah, especially seeing as you can see the outline of the cape. Yeah, <laughs> artistic license, dude. Okay, it totally works as artistic license. Um, the final panel on page four is again almost a three D shot of Superman flying. Mm. Again, the perspective is such that his hand is right at the front of the panel, and you're following his entire body. And then all the scientist egghead types are all stood behind him. In fact, there is a guy, though, who looks like Bunsen Honeydew from the Muppets. Yeah. Doesn't he? It was Beaker. We need Beaker. Uh, In fact, uh, the art in this issue is entirely, is almost entirely without fault. It's really, really good. Uh, Page five, we've got a Daily Planet headline shot and a shot of Morgan Edge in the bottom panel. Swan's arts never look better than it did under Murphy Anderson as Inca. This was Morgan Edge's first appearance and didn't quite jibe with what Jack Kirby was doing in, doing with him in New Gods, where it was established he was a spy of Apocalypse. It was later established that this was a clone of Morgan Edge. Oh, of course. Which does seem to be the get-out-of-jail-free yeah. card for all comic book stories, doesn't it? He was a clone! Okay, I'll buy that. We're already seeing the first clues that Clark Kent has been updated for the times, then the 70s. He's wearing a natty blue striped shirt and white tie here, as opposed to the traditional blue suit, white shirt, red tie. And uh, the suit that he wears is light brown and double-breasted. This subtle updating of Kent's wardrobe was one of the first things O'Neill and Shorts wanted to introduce. It works much better than Jimmy Olsen, who is sadly still wearing a bow tie. Mm-hmm. But bow ties occur, cool, yeah. apparently. We're going to the Doctor. Well, they are now. Because of the Doctor. And Fezzes. <laughs> and Fezzes. Fezzes are very cool. Um, page six. Uh, you've got to love Clark's confidence on this page. He's slightly worried that being a broadcaster will mean he's before hundreds of people. And switching to Superman will be harder. But he just goes, I'll think of something. I, I always do. 
That's a level of confidence I wouldn't have previously associated with Clark Kent. Yeah. Although maybe that's not Clark Kent thinking that. That could just be Superman. Yeah. That works, doesn't it? Suppose. At least I think it does. Uh, I appreciate the brevity of the story, but I think this is one place where a little more time could have been spent um, compared to a lot of modern comic structures. Clark is just selected in the space of a panel to work on TV. Mm. He's got no experience. He's got no skills in that particular job, and that just kind of gets glossed over, doesn't it? Yeah. Here, Kent, you're going to work on TV now. Well, it's not. It's a whole okay. miniseries as to why they chose him. Oh, yeah, there'd be a six-issue miniseries on him humming and ahhing about accepting the job, yeah. and he'd have to go and talk to Mar and Park Kent about it, and <laughs> they would say, oh, well, I don't know, Clark, but it's your decision, ultimately, and that's how it'd all work out. Um, especially in light of later stories, are you aware of this? There was a, a later story either in the late 70s or the early 80s where they established that Superman constantly did super hypnotism that made everyone who looks at Clark see him as a slightly balding, buck-toothed, middle-aged guy. Okay. It was never mentioned again, oddly, outside of that one issue. Right. But if that's true, you do got to wonder why Morgan Edge picked him for TV yeah. instead of the, let's be honest, no sexist piggery, but much more attractive Lois Lane, mm. who is stood as if you're looking at Lois and then you're looking at this slightly balding bucktooth guy, who are you going to give the TV <laughs> job to? Well, I'd go for Lois. But maybe that's just me. Maybe she looks good in HD. I don't know. Um, also, a male rocket. Yeah. We really didn't foresee email coming, did we? No. How, how would a male rocket work exactly? Does it just land wherever you No, I have, I have a vision. It's like, it's like a rocket-powered version of a paper boy. Where a paper boy just chucks your paper on the grass yeah. in America. The asteroid hitting down. Yeah, no, no, the rocket would come out and then it would just explode its payload and all the mail would just fall out. And then in the middle of town you've got to go and pick up your own yeah. mail. That's how I see it working. I can't understand why it didn't take off. I just have to keep watching and see where it explodes, and then, right, oh, we have to drive over there. Yeah, to the mail, and then there's nothing for you. Yeah. And you've wasted your time. Well, that's in the next state. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, like we keep getting mail for a guy who lives in the same address but in another part of town. Yeah. In a different postcode area. Mm. So you can end up getting mail for somebody that isn't even you. Because it's not very well thought out, the mail racket. No. At least I don't think it is. Um, page seven. What Superman. if the mail explodes? You could sue the postal department, presumably. It's in a rocket, and the thing's going to happen to the rocket, and that's going to happen to the mail as well. Yeah. yeah. They've not really thought of this not through, really, I don't no. think. Mail rocket. <laughs> Sounds good, but... but and how, how much effort do you have to put into launching it? And would you do it twice a day for mail, or just one time a day? Mm. And would you have to do it every single day? That's very expensive. Mm. Email's much cheaper. I can see why email took off and the yeah. mail rocket is, is consigned to the, the Sinclair C5 of, of great inventions. Mm. Never to be mentioned again. Anyway, Superman's line on page 7 was, I thought, very funny. Never thought I'd be grateful for a station break. <laughs> so during the commercial break... Sir Clark Kent has took off to go and do some super feats. There's a quick change panel in the middle of the page where Clark changes into Superman, which is fantastic. Very reminiscent of what the movies would do, particularly Superman 2 in the alleyway where he rushes off to go to Paris. You know, the, that's why they call them terrorists, Kent, scene. And in Superman 3 where he goes through the back of the police car. 
Yeah. Which is still one of my favourite changes, mm. even though you don't see a lot of it. I love that. He just gets in one side of Clyde, gets out the other as Superman, and you're like, and the guy in the car's going, what? Yeah. What was that doing? He, he didn't notice that. He didn't notice because he was too busy eating his donuts. <laughs> or sleeping. Or sleeping, probably. Uh, page eight, we get a lovely smug look on the punk's face as he produces kryptonite out of his bag, only to have Superman eat it. Yeah. Like it was an apple. Which was hysterical. Uh, but that's just one cool thing on a page replete with cool things. Superman saying, if you haven't seen a paper or you can't read, is a wonderful put down. Which I was kind of, a, would Superman really be that insulting? Uh, but then I was like, yeah, go on. Yeah. He deserves it. Blokes are numpty. And then, as he eats the kryptonite rock, he says, mm, could use a bit of salt. And then he pats his stomach is this kryptonite not iron at this point as well he can still eat it can he I suppose yeah he can eat iron it's good for your iron yeah. they put it in iron brew it's made in Scotland iron. from girders yeah um I hate to think what that's going to come out looking like yeah but um or how much it would hurt the man of steel coming out thankfully Mark Miller didn't write it so we, we never get to find out no. made a, a healthy chunk in the toilet, though. Made a nice noise. How does it flush? I don't want to know. Maybe he burns it with his heat vision. Maybe. Maybe he recycles. Um, the first time I read this as a kid, I thought I was hysterical, and it's still funny now. Mm. Did you laugh at that? Yeah, I did. I laughed at the next panel as well. Oh, the next panel's brilliant. Top of page nine, Superman slaps the guy, just like a little love tap, mm. which was very reminiscent of this episode of Lois and Clark where Dean Cage just flicks somebody and knocks him out. Yeah. I, that was brilliant, wasn't it? By the way, you're under arrest. Smack. <laughs> just taps him and knocks him out. He changes back to Clark, which is great. Uh, also on page nine. Does he not seem at the bottom of this page that he's very close to the launch site, though? Yeah. Now... Since the smoke goes over. Yeah, I mean, I get that Clark wouldn't be hurt by this, but it seems a bit strange that he would be allowed so close to the blast radius. Because nowadays, when you see them launch space shuttles, they're way they're far away, aren't they? Yeah. Behind barriers and stuff. So it seemed that um, he was a bit close there. But it does help him use the smoke to change to Superman again. And there's a lovely little comment about changing in a phone booth. They always make jokes about that, don't they? Yeah. Superman, the smoke and dust raised by the rocket will hide me from the onlookers so I can switch clothes without ducking into a phone booth or something. Um, he first changed into a phone booth in the second episode of the Fleischer cartoons, but rarely did it in the comics. This has become established as were he changes in the minds of the general public, though, which has led to gags in the comics like this one and in Superman the movie. In the 1950s TV show, he changed in a storeroom. You do have to wonder how this urban legend that he always gets changed in... Um, in phone booths has started. Well, he, he does it in storerooms and closets more. Mm. Or he just does the quick change thing, mm. like he did here. I mean, a lot of the time we don't even see him change, we just see the shirt rip. Or when he spins around really, really fast. Yeah, like Wonder Woman. Yeah. Which works. Yeah. I'm totally down with that. Page 10. Whilst I'm loath to give Morgan Edge any credit, the cocky Superman displayed here is actually quite chilling. It's unusual to hear Superman be so arrogant and his assertion that this feeling of knowing there's nothing left that can harm him and he's actually freeing him to do unlimited good is the very typical definition of pride before a fall. We do, however, get an excellent dogfight between Superman and a couple of fighter jets 
on pages 10 and 11, which is just great. Not as good as the one in the Golden Age where he uses the machine guns it's against them. It's not as much... I was going to say as much fun, but this one is very fun. The one in the Golden Age where he actually does turn the machine guns on the people yeah. that are pursuing him was excellent and a lot of fun. It's kind of hard to imagine this Superman doing that. Mm. So with that caveat that this Superman isn't going to open fire on people... It's still entertaining. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great. I mean, there's still so many cool things like this that we've never seen Superman do in live action. Mm. And seeing him take on fighter jets in a movie would be awesome. It would be like the opening of Return of the Jedi, but with Superman. Yeah. Not Return of the Jedi, Revenge of the Sith. Revenge of the Sith, yes, but with Superman, because that would be cool. Mm. In fact, that, op- that opening of Revenge of the Sith <laughs> would be cooler with Superman in it. Yeah. That would be brilliant. Buzz droids and Superman just flies past and uses the vision to burn him off. And there'll be one there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Superman's just, we're all part of the same team, and then off he flies. Could you do the same to my whiny partner? <laughs> You'll be doing the galaxy a favour. I have a bad feeling about this one. <laughs> very good. <laughs> um, two really cool super moves. On page 12, Superman rips his way through the hull of the first fighter, and when in the cabin, smashes the two pilots' heads together. Mm, I like what he does on the next one, he doesn't even bother just... Yeah, like, the next them. one, yeah, the next one's even better. He just punches his fists through the cockpit, and in the process of doing that, he punches the two guys on the yeah. head. <laughs> now, it's logical to assume that he's pulled his punch enough there, but he's, he's punching through with enough force to puncture the top of the aeroplane. Yeah. Surely he's punching with enough force though to punch through the heads. Is he quick enough to punch through the ship and then and pull then back? And then pull back slightly. He must be, I presume. Um, the taken out with the sound effect is like a delicate thud. Mm. Um, that was really crack. yeah not like and you know you don't see the brains rubbing out the mouths or anything because <laughs> once again it's not a Mark because once again it's not a Mark Miller comic but the, the coolest thing about this for me is this this wasn't handled in any way approaching camp hmm. but it's very playful like Superman could do this stuff all because he's doing all of this with a smile on his face yeah he's thoroughly enjoying himself here um, the Swanderson art team um, handle it brilliantly. The art of the thugs being taken about by Superman, it's it's played in such a way I could totally see Dean Kane doing it like this on Lois and Clark, if Lois and Clark had had the budget to be able to pull off this kind of set piece. Because mm. it's really, really good. And very, it looks a bit like Scott Bakula on the bottom of page 14. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the maybe, shin. Maybe just Quantum Leaps into Superman. That would be an awesome episode <laughs> of Quantum Leap, wouldn't it? Yeah. He looks in the mirror and Al's like, you're Superman. And he's... Oh, boy. Doom, 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 doom. That would be totally awesome. They should have awesome. done that, though. Yeah, they should have done an episode. Do you know they were going to do an episode relaxing to Magnum? Was it? That would have been cool. Yeah. Scott Bakula is Magnum PI. Um, there's a brilliant shot on page 13 of Superman towing two jets with his burr hands, mm. which is just brilliant. And the flyby of the mark in the sand at the top of page 14 is not lingered on or even mentioned. Which I thought was a nice subtle piece of writing as he flies over with the, the two jets. Panel four, I love that Clark's first thought at being promoted to TV full time is will Superman have to wait for a commercial break? Hmm. I'll be honest, again, some sexist piggery, mm. but I think my first thought there would have been wow, that's an amazingly short skirt Lois is wearing. Yeah. I hope she's not going to bend over. 
Maybe I hope that she is. Maybe she gets promoted to uh, <laughs> Maybe. Job if she did. That's what she's after. Yes. And then the ending is the big cliffhanger that leads into the rest of this storyline. Where the, an inverted dent in the sand can then form into the shape of a person. Yes, and stumble off. Yeah. I liked it. I thought that was a good ending. What did you think of that one, Michael? Well, I really enjoyed this show, actually. Um, I thought it was really fun and the art was great. Yeah. Um, now, there, there are some bits in it that are quite silly, like the Mel Rocket and the Super Sandman. Mm, yeah. So, well, see, the Super Sandman doesn't go on to be silly if you've read the rest of the story. Mm. The Super Sandman ends up working quite well. So, I think the concept behind it is a bit... It's a bit woolly. Yeah. But it ultimately ends up working out. If you've read the remaining nine issues or eight issues mm. of this story, it does end up working out. I thought this was an excellent issue, so I'm glad you enjoyed this one. It's jam-packed with action and characterisation when you consider it's 15 pages long. Mm. I think I said 17 earlier on, didn't I? I've uh, done it a disservice. O'Neill gives us a glimpse into Superman's psyche as he becomes slightly arrogant when it's revealed there's no green K left on Earth, giving us a relatable human emotion. He beefs up Clark's role by having him be given a new job and gives him a new wardrobe, modernising him without trying too hard to make him cool. The action sequences are well done and fast-paced, and the art really captures the idea that this is the real world that Superman inhabits. An argument can be made that these changes come thick and fast with nearly a moment to catch one's breath, especially when the reader considers that the story is only 15 pages long, but other than the rather quick, nonchalant way Clark is promoted, this makes the story a fast-paced and extremely satisfying read, despite its brevity. Uh, It's got a backup strip, The Fabulous World of Krypton, untold stories of Superman's native planet, which were always mildly interesting to me as a a kid. I preferred the private life of Clark Kent. Mainly because I don't care about Krypton. Okay. Do you know, Krypton's purpose... Was to blow up. Is to blow up, yeah. That's Krypton's sole purpose in the legend of Superman. It's to give birth to him and then explode. (laughs) I don't care about the last days of Krypton. I don't care what Krypton was like as a planet. You'll learn all of that from Superman. Yeah. Krypton is there to go boom. That's like doing entire Star Wars stories devoted to life on Alderaan. <laughs> I don't care. Purpose of Alderaan, like Krypton, it's is to go boom. So, whilst some of these untold tales of Krypton stories were fun, hmm. I always preferred the private life of Clark Kent stories, because, you know, I just did. Um... As I've mentioned for the first time since we started the series, I've actually got the issue for this story. All the stories we've covered thus far have come from the archives, chronicles, or trade. This one has a 5p stamp on it, which irritates me. Hmm. Actually, I'm not bothered about stuff like that, to be honest with you. Hmm. Stuff like that. There are people who'd grade this down because of that, whereas in every other respect, oh, this is a... They keep in the plastic cases. Yeah, yeah, the CG... CGF, is it? No idea. Something grading. Slabbing. You mark it like 7.2. I think slabbing is of the devil, to be honest with you. Comics are meant to be red. Um, In every other respect, this is pretty much a mint condition comic, isn't it? Mm. But there are people that would mark it down because it's got that 5p stamp on it. Because DC are only interested in collecting now. But Yeah, but to be honest, I don't care. Um, uh, The one I have is signed by Murphy Anderson and Denny O'Neill. Obviously, I didn't buy this new. But at a comic mart not too long ago, I got this for quite a reasonable price. Mm-hmm. He threw in, because I didn't have enough money, yeah. and I kept looking at it, and he said, well, how much have you got? And I told him how much I had. And I said, would you throw these in as well? He had the four issues of DC Comics Presents by Jim Sterling, mm. uh, and he threw them in for me as well for the same price. Yeah. So essentially I got those four DC Comics Presents for free. And they almost made the show. 
Yeah. The Jim Sterling ones where he fights a Mongol with Supergirl are awesome. They're in one of my annuals, mm. which is why I love them. That's the thing about these uh, comic marts. You can get things for cheap. People will so, barter. Yeah. There is a guy who actually has a sign up saying, Barter. Mm. I'm not here to take this stuff away. Make me an offer and we'll talk. Yeah. I love that. That, like, yeah, it's got a price on it. What do you want to give me for it? Because I don't want to take all these comics away with me. Yeah. I want to sell them. That seems fair enough to me, to be honest. Um, there's a direct currents article about current DC comics, including Jerry Lewis in World's Funniest Comics number 122. As a kid, I didn't know who Jerry Lewis was. I'm still not sure. He's big in France. Okay. Apparently. Or was. I don't know if he's still alive. Uh, Reading the direct currents thing is interesting. The sheer diversity in the comics being plugged. Our Army at War, Son of Tomahawk and The Losers are all war comics. World's Funniest is a comedy book. House of Mystery and Phantom Stranger are borderline horror comics. Jack Kirby was launching New Gods and Forever People. And Lois Lane, Aquaman and Batman are the other entries with a plug for the Superman comic that we've just read. There's the first of the fabulous world of Krypton backups, detailing how Jarrell met Lara and a wonderful two-page ad promoting the changes in Superman comics over the coming months in which Supergirl gets an absolutely wonderful 70s makeover, replete with a mini dress that's almost a skirt, thigh-high boots, and one of those belts made of steel circles that were fashionable in the early 70s. So she's not got the hot pants yet. Or the headband. Or the headband that would come in the 70s and the 80s. What's going on with Lois Lane's reboot? What was Lois Lane's reboot? That one? That's Rose and Thorn. Oh, right. They're a backup strip in the Lois Lane Oh, comic. oh right. I've so it's not Lois that. Lane. And uh, Jimmy Olsen and the New Gods, written by and drawn by Jack Kirby. Which this, is very good. It is, yeah. Um, this is... This advert will be represented in the Superman Kryptonite Nevermore hardcover that came out not too long ago. Which I, I recommend. A lot of people complained about that hardcover saying the printing... Hmm. of the paper was was a bit naff but I liked it I thought it evoked the era there's an excellent advert for the rally chopper which I had I had that rally chopper that gear stick yeah let me tell you was in quite the um, the painful place if you ever <laughs> broke quickly and come off your bike and hot wheels and I had that as well the hot wheels tune up tower hmm. I totally had that with the little cars that drive down it and the lift that lifts them all that was brilliant Yes. Uh, I'm sure I had a water one, which was always a problem. Yes, you did. Leaking. You had a water one. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, Denny O'Neill would write this title until issue 242 for a total of nine issues. 239 was a reprint special, in which Superman would learn of the sand creature and his ability to temporarily drain Superman's powers and even keep some of them. Kind of like the parasite in many ways. Gaining the ability to communicate in issue 237, the Sand Demon ultimately weakened Superman so much he was seriously hurt in Superman 242, but the Sand Superman takes on Superman's characteristics as well and decides that he wants to live. To that end, Superman must die. After being shown that a battle between the two would destroy the Earth, Sand Superman is sent to another dimension by I Ching, and Superman elects to remain powered down. Alas, unlike the other changes being made in this issue, Clark would remain a TV broadcaster for nearly 15 years, despite a lot of people saying stuff, including Paul Levitz, yeah. who said that it didn't take. Uh, Superman was back to his old self pretty much pretty soon after O'Neill left. The only thing wrong with the end of the Sandman story, yeah. if you've seen Breaking Dawn Part 2, the Twilight movie, I have not. 
that's the ending. So if you've seen that film, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I'm not going to ruin it, fine. However, other writers would follow in O'Neill's footsteps and try to create a more modern and up-to-date Clark Kent. One of those writers, Curry Bates, would become one of the better Superman writers of the Bronze Age, contributing enjoyable tales month after month, and his long-standard contributions to the mythos include Mr. and Mrs. Superman, Vartox, and the revamped Lex Luthor. One of the best Bates storylines ran over a mammoth four issues, a remarkable length of time for DC books of that time period, and it is the first issue of this, one of my personal favourite Superman stories, Who Took the Super Out of Superman? from Superman 296, released with a February 1976 cover date, but was probably released around November 13th, 1975. The cover by Bob Oxner has Superman in the background, bidding farewell to Clark Kent, who walks away in the foreground, clad back in his traditional blue suit-red tie combo. Suitcases in hand, as Superman says, This is it, Clark. Our double life is over. Goodbye and good luck. You'll need it. It's the very definition of the kind of excellent cover DC used to do that oft times the story inside didn't manage to match. The very stark white background makes the reader ponder the characters and wonder, how have they split? Why have they split? Is this real? Well, it's as real as it gets anyway. I thought it was pretty damn good. Mm. What did you think, Michael? It's okay. <laughs> I love the way you said it's meaning I have to edit that together. Yeah, and I, w- I want to say it stands out really, but it serves its purpose. I always think covers with white backgrounds stand out. See, if you're looking at that on a newsstand, yeah, I think the pure white makes it stand out. Well, apart from the white, it has nothing in that makes it stand out. See, I think the di- I disagree with that. I think the dialogue—you're instantly going there. How are Clark Kent and Superman two different people? How has that worked? What's going on? It makes you want to pick the comic up. Yeah, because and it's one of those things as well. This is one of those rare... Superman is one of those rare characters you can get away with this kind of cover because everybody in the world knows Clark Kent is Superman. Mm-hmm. Whether they've read a Superman comic in their life or not. So this totally works. Again, my copy of this has a 10p stamp in it. So you look how much comics went up in the space of a couple of years. Oh, five pence. Written by Elliot S. Magin and Curry Bates. Drawn by Kurt Swan and Bob Oxner. And edited by Julius Schwartz. As Kal-El's ship landed in Smallville, another ship landed a continent away, killing the witnesses and depositing a yellow suit-clad man on the Earth. Many years later, Superboy greets the President in Smallville as the yellow-suited figure having not aged watches. The man makes contact with his homeworld, who tell him that they've cocked up and he should age but doesn't. Zvyar, for that is his name, says that's fine, he can cover, and the voice says that by their calculations, the teenage Superboy will move to Metropolis and he must resettle there. Sure enough, many years later in Metropolis, Superman is protecting the world from a swarm of bees when he spots a boat whose occupants have ripped off an ocean liner. Superman swoops down after making sure the bees have left, naturally, and the crooks have rigged the liner to explode with a detonator. Superman uses his super breath to deposit a bee on the crook's hand and he drops the detonator as Superman mops up. He then heads to his karate class to meet Lois, compressing his Superman costume to microscopic size and eating it. Arriving at the class, Lois and Steve Lombard are waiting. A kid throws an American football into the road and Steve goes to catch it but runs right out in front of a big yellow taxi. Clark instinctively throws himself in front of the taxi, pushing Steve out of the way. But he's run over. Whilst Lois calls for an ambulance, Zvyar muses that although Clark has many times in the past feigned illness to avoid being discovered, this time will be different. 
Clark awakens in the hospital, stunned that he was there in the first place, and even more stunned that the doctor is able to penetrate his skin with a needle. Lois and Steve arrive to see how he is, as Clark realises he has no superpowers, as he shakes Lombard's hand. After they leave, he regurgitates the costume from his mouth and dons it. He walks out of the hospital, but is confronted by sky crooks on a jet platform as he leaves. Grabbing hold of a nearby lamppost, he realises he still has his superpowers, and takes care of the sky crooks by whipping the vehicles from beneath them at super speed. Arriving at his apartment at 344 Clinton, Superman deduces that in his costume he has powers. In his civilian guise, he has none. He dresses to attend a tenants' meeting, but a huge crate in his apartment that he apparently didn't notice until now sprouts arms and attacks him. Clark must remove all of his outer garments before his powers return, but when they do, the robot is quickly dispatched. Clark answers the door to Mrs. Goldstein, and they attend the tenants' meeting, but finds his attention wandering. If he stays like this, will he have to make the choice? Clark or Superman? Meanwhile, Zvyar contacts his mysterious voices and they say the mission has been a success. Now it can be told. Some time ago they were contracted by a client to destroy the Earth and the weapon of that destruction will be Superman. Uh, page one of the splash, you've guessed it, is a traditional alt cover. A ghostly Superman flies away from a stumbling Clark Kent who muses that it seems like we've been split in two. A mighty Superman and a powerless Clark Kent. We're told that this will be the most spectacular crisis ever to challenge the Man of Steel, and that it takes place after the events in other magazines. Nowadays, this would have crossed over into all those other magazines and probably would have lasted a year. Mm. Well, the note at the bottom of the page says it takes place before Superman's adventure and other DC titles. When exactly is before other DC titles? Basically, what they're doing there is they're covering their ass. If you're, if this is a four-part story, right? Yeah. And there are other Superman books being published at the same time. Mm-hmm. There will be an anally retentive fan who goes, well, we know he's going to get better because in Action Comics he was Superman again. Yeah. So by saying that this story takes place after the exploits in other magazines, you're saying that this story takes place after those other stories that you may be reading at the minute, so that way you don't know how this is all going to pan out. Okay. Basically. Yeah. Is what it is. At least they didn't say this takes place before. Yeah. His exploits in other magazines, because that really would have given it away, wouldn't it? Mm. No point reading it then, is there? Like Action and Superman. Yeah, though. like Action and Superman, basically. It's like, in reading Action Comics, will Superman survive this? Or, oh, gee, let me pick up an issue of Superman and see. Yeah. Bit dopey, to be honest with you. Uh, page two. We get a retelling of the origin. In other takes, primarily TV and film adaptations, the rocket ship Crashlands, whereas in the comics origins of this time, it deposits little Kal-El comfortably and then explodes. Hmm. It, it always lands perfectly. Yeah. Whereas in TV shows and films and stuff, it crashes. Mm. Which, you know, is fair enough. I have no problem with it. Um, on page four, did you not find it unlikely that the aliens wouldn't realise that the denizens of Earth grow older unless they really didn't bother watching us for that long. Maybe they didn't. Well, see, to me that implies that the research sucks. Because you have old people and young people yeah. together. So. So, so how long did they go up, like, five minutes and go around bored of this now? We'll send him on his mission. Or maybe they just looked at California. <laughs> All the Botox. Yeah. <laughs> it's very possible. Um, likewise... I hate the line. Our probability studies show that upon reaching maturity, Superboy will move to Metropolis. How the hell can they predict that most random act, yet not know that humans age? <laughs> um, How does that work? 
This makes these aliens seem incredibly incompetent, mm. as well as useless. So they can use the probability generator to guess that at some point Superboy will grow up to be Superman and he will move to Metropolis and they know where he will live. Yeah. Because he has an apartment next door to Clark Kent. But, duh, we completely forgot to factor in that humans age. How stupid are we? Quite a bit. Yes, would well, be I, I the answer like to the question. sound like Crichton as well. <laughs> we fail to realise... Earth humans show the marks of aging, which you do not, sir. <laughs> ah, Mr. Lister, sir. Mr. Lister, sir. Uh, you, you do not age. You do. We have uh, made an error in fashioning your disguise. <laughs> See, if I was Xavier, though, I would have said, How long did you research this plan, numpty? Yeah. Anyway, the, the, if you can get over that, that rather mild plot contrivance um, page 5 the writers really did like Superman versus nature back in the day didn't they here we have Superman versus a swarm of bees well you know um, if we were still in the golden age Superman would have used all of those bees to take on the bad guys that would have been cool wouldn't have bothered with them just got them all to sting them <laughs> just set the swarm of bees on the yeah. guys that are robbing the boat instead of just one bee mm. Actually, that would have been quite awesome if Superman had done that um, page 8 as super feats go, these are all pretty easy ones for Superman, but they're still fun to watch. I especially like that he ties the crooks up in seaweed and then leaves them on the liner, telling the captain to chuck them to the sharks if he feels the need. <laughs> so Superman's not willing to kill anybody, but, he, but he's quite else. willing to say to somebody else, if you had enough of them, just feed them to the shark. <laughs> I thought that was really good. I presume he was joking. Yeah. I, I don't think Superman was really advocating feed these people to Jaws. Oh, was it? Or Bruce the Shark, as the, the, the Jaws was named. Um, yeah, because it's little scenes like this that show that Superman has a sense of humour. Mm. He's not always a goody-goody. Yeah. He has like a, he is portrayed to be a lot of the time. Yeah, like in the last issue we covered in Superman 3, th- 233, mm. he enjoyed himself taking out the pilots. Yeah. And here he's making a joke about throwing these people to the sharks. But now he's just always, oh, you're such a boy scout clerk. Yeah, whereas he had a quite a sly sense of humour in these stories that, that makes the character work. Page 9. What do you think about super compression? Well, later on, I made the point that... Um, because he's putting his costume in his mouth and it's tiny and his mouth's wet. When he decompresses, he's going to be wearing a soggy costume. He's going to be putting wet clothes back on. Yeah. A blast of super breath. Well, he can't do a blast of super breath until he's wearing the costume, can he? No. Good point. So he does have to put the costume on wet. Yeah. And if you've ever put wet clothes on, it's icky. Mm. Isn't it? Um, super, see, super compression's no dumber than super ventriloquism to be honest with you. No, or, or super hypnotism. You can pull super ventriloquism off. And he has done many times. Yeah. And he will do in a story that we'll, we'll cover in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. As a tease <laughs> for you. See, my problem with this is Clark eats his Superman costume, which begs the question of how he gets it back. Well, he, he, he compresses it, so can he not just put it in a pocket? Does he really have to eat yeah, it? Yeah, does he really have to eat it? Yeah, why can't he just stuff it in his pocket? Yeah. That's a very good point. Well, because then later on, when he's in hospital, I suppose he couldn't put it on then. Yeah, but even if he'd still had it, like, in the inside pocket of his jacket, it's unlikely people would have found it. Nobody's searching his coat, his clothes in the hospital, are they? And besides, there's a little bit of fabric anyway. Yeah, I mean, then there's... The, the, I've just got this idea again of... He gets this back by letting nature take its course. Mm. It's a good job the pre-crisis costume repelled dirt. <laughs> 
Otherwise, uh, that'd be coming out in the wash as well. Um, did you notice that the judo school, the black belt instructor was Julia Schwartz? I did not. Which I thought was a nice touch. Um, and here we get Steve Lombard. Are you familiar with Steve Lombard at all? I uh-huh. am. He was Flash Thompson, by any other name, yeah. wasn't he? I read him in the Jeff Johns ones. Oh, yeah, Jeff Johns brought him back, didn't he? Yeah, because in... he brings everything back. Well, who, who on earth was petitioning for the, for the return of Steve Lombard? Um, Anybody? Gary Frank. You reckon? Probably. No, I mean, he's Christopher Reeve Superman. Yeah, well, well, Steve Lombard wasn't in the films, so that makes... That don't, that don't get that at all. Um, I always thought Steve Lombard was a moron. To be honest with you. Well, especially here. Yeah, well, especially here. He runs out in front of a car trying to catch an American football, which is a trick most boys have grown out of by the time they're 10. Yeah, you keep teaching your kids not to run out for the <laughs> ball, but this guy's doing it in his 30s, 40s. Yeah. Uh, so Clark shoves him out of the way. And then even after Clark has saved his life, essentially, he just stands there like a numpty. Mm. And Lois has to yell at him to go and call an ambulance. What a diver. What an utter tool. I mean, Steve Lombard was always a moron, so I, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised by the the sheer oh, he's immensity come, of his moronitude. He's come back into the new 52 as well now. Oh, is he? He's, he's doing that Channel 52. Oh, bloody hell. Oh, no, nobody wants Steve Lombard back, dandy <laughs> dear. He was a carbon copy Flash Thompson knockoff in the 70s. Oh, dear me. See, J. J. David Wheater has just done an excellent and passionate job of trying to convince me to give the new 52 another chance. Yeah. And you tell me they're bringing back Steve Lombard. He's only in, like, Channel 52, which is a two-page backup, and it better not be all of the DC comics, but it's certainly in, like... Oh, yeah, I read them today when I was reading some of the Death in the Family stuff. Yeah. Right, okay. You know, I didn't twig that it was Steve. It was a girl in the one I read. He does the, um... Spot. Right. Did you find them funny or was it just me? I just found them irritating. I found them quite irritating. Because fi- the playoff is trying to be funny. Which oh, is it supposed to be funny? Not funny. Yeah. Right, okay. No, I just found them annoying. Um, page 11 of this comic book, which was in no way annoying, <laughs> um, is a great pitch. I really enjoyed this pledge. With Clark completely in the dark as to what's happening, there are some very amusing bits on the page. Number one, the doctor putting the needle in Clark's arm. Andy actually penetrating his skin is a lovely little nod to the first page of Superman number one, mm. if you recall, where a doctor tried that very thing with a needle on his arm and it snapped. And yeah. Superman just said, Try it again, Doc. And that's smug where yeah. he did. And B, while seeing Clark trying to squeeze Steve Lombard's hand was very funny, it not paying off was even funnier. It does beg the question if Clark had had his superpowers. Could he have broken his hand? He'd have broke every bone in his hand, wouldn't he? Which would have been funny. Yeah. Because it's Steve Lombard and nobody cares. Um, a riff on this gag would be played out in both the pilot of Lois and Clark and in the 2006 retelling of Superman's beginning, Secret Origin, by Jeff Johns. And arguably one of the best scenes in Secret Origin, where he shakes Metallo's hand and squeezes it. Oh, yeah. And Metallo's trying to squeeze Clark's hand as if to crush his hand, and Clark's just stood there taking it with a big goofy grin on his face. Was that really 2006? That oh, was 2006, yeah. Totally. Um, page 12. I really do love this era. I do love the Bronze Era, and I do love this story. But I do have a few problems with Superman compressing his costume. As Michael has said, it would have made much more sense to stick it in his, his clothes. Although, to be fair, his clothes are nowhere to be seen when he's in hospital. So, I suppose that's 
explains that. I can just about cope with the fact that he can do this. After all, The Flash did the same thing. Keeping his costume in his ring, and I always thought that was cool, especially visually. But was Clark's story? If he kept it in his mouth, surely it would affect his speech patterns. And he'd end up sounding like Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Maybe he has a fake tooth. <laughs> he sticks it up with a fake yeah. tooth. Yeah, that, that totally worked. Um, my second thing was, doctors stick temperature gauges in mouths to see how patients are. Would they not have spotted it mm. when the, they were in his mouth? The costume looks like it shrunk to about two centimetres by two centimetres, so I'm sure the Doctor would have seen it. If he swallows it, this means that Superman just regurgitated his own costume. Yeah. Am I the only one that thinks that's a bit gross? A little bit, and then puts it on. Yes. I, 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 don't, I don't quite know what I think of it. I don't... There's a part of me that thinks that's really cool that he can do it, mm. and there's a part of me that thinks, no, that no, just no. <laughs> Uh, page 14, by contrast, was brilliant. I love seeing Superman do super stuff. And I love when the writers are able to come up with new super stuff for him to do. The Sky Crooks, which is a terrible name for a gang of bad guys, it has to be said, are gloating that no helicopter can follow them on the gliders as they whiz around in the air. And then Superman just whips the gliders out from under them and they do that wonderful little Warner Brothers cartoon thing where they hover in mid for a second. And, and then they look underneath and go, ah! and fall to the floor. And then Superman catches them before they hit the ground. Which I thought was really funny. Mm. This was very Christopher Reeve, this bit. Especially that lose something, fellas, as they're falling and going, ah! Well, when, when he leaves the hospital, yeah. would no one have put together that Clark Kent Superman? Why? Well... Because he just walks out as Superman. Yeah. And Clark's gone missing. Well, maybe they don't go in and see Clark. Maybe he just gets lucky. Okay. He goes out as Superman. Nobody sees him leave the door. Mm. And then he walks through the corridor and people, what are you doing there? And he just says, I'm visiting a friend. Now, everyone knows Clark's friends with Superman. Yeah, but he's missing now. <clears throat> nobody's gone into him yet. The Doctor's a busy dude. He gets back before the Doctor's check in on him. Maybe he's left a big dummy under the bed. Okay. You know, like they used to as kids. I don't know. Oh no, he just goes back home, doesn't he? Yeah. So Clark's essentially just checked himself out without telling anyone. He's he's ducked paying. Yeah. Well, that's just shocking. Absolutely. Well, they know who he is. I'm sure they can send him a bill. Superman's um, uh, committing tax fraud. Yeah. Uh, page fifteen. Clark has a closet full of the same blue suit and pants. Mm. Despite the fact we just saw him wearing a natty brown suit and a striped shirt. Yeah. He's like Einstein or, or Brundlefly. Mm. We're in the same costumes all the time. Uh, I love the little metatextual line about for years I've been telling kids wearing a Superman costume won't give them powers. Especially considering the story we did a couple of weeks ago of Menace from the Stars. Yeah. Where he did think it was the costume that was giving him the powers. At page 15, this was the silliest yet coolest part of the story, I thought. With a robot With the box. big robot crate, yeah. Um, there's this huge crate, right? Yeah. that's been delivered to Clark. But Clark doesn't even notice it, despite the fact that it's right behind his front door. Mm-hmm. And this isn't a small crate. <clears throat> no. This is at least six foot tall. Yeah. Because it's got a robot in it. Okay, fair enough. Is there a robot in it, or is the crate a robot? See, I got, there's a robot in it. All right. The robot busts out of the crate. Yeah, I thought it was like that old Transformer tie ad, where it was a rock. It was just arms. It, you know, it was a rock, and then it turned into a robot. <laughs> 
and he can put it back into a rock again. <laughs> robot rock? Yeah. What Transformer drew that short straw? <laughs> it's like the Transformer that was a gun. Megatron. And you're like... You know, the most terrifying and fearful Transformer. In what way was he terrifying? And he's a useless Yeah. Gun. Doesn't he need somebody to fire the gun? Yeah. That was, that was a bit... Start screaming, let me up. Uh, no. <laughs> no, no, I don't think I'm going to bother. <laughs> um, but then the robot box attacks him, even though he has his costume on under his Clark Kent clothes. I don't know if my suspension of disbelief was willing to go to that. I have to say I was very dubious by that plot device. He has to have no Clark Kent clothes on at all Even to be super. Yeah. So does he have to take his Superman boots off, take his socks off, and then put his boots back yeah. on? Yeah. I mean, well, that's... that's, that's does he have to go commando as well? That's exactly right. Exactly my point. Yeah, is he... Does he go commando then? <laughs> does Superman not have underwear? Would the underwear be Clark Kent's underwear and not Superman's? How does that work? Yeah. So... I mean, I can ignore it because I do genuinely love this four-part story and where it ultimately takes us through the next three parts. But I have to say, I did find it very dubious that even if he's got his Superman costume on under his Clark Kent clothes, he's got no superpowers. Yeah. I didn't get that. I thought that was a bit bit much, to be honest with you. So page 16, Intergang has sent a huge robot to kill Clark. And, um... This is why I love comics. It would have been much easier to arrange a sniper to take a shot at it, presumably. Yeah. Or to have a mugging in the street that goes wrong. That, that would have been too simple, I grant you. Mm-hmm. But building a giant robot, sticking it in a crate, paying to post it, and then waiting for it to attack is a perfectly acceptable way of killing somebody if you're not in a rush. Yeah. <laughs> I do love that Superman kicks the crap out of it as well. Literally. Literally. And um, everyone just thinks he's moving furniture around. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. But see, where did that shirt come from? Yeah. He didn't have that shirt in his closet, did he? In his jeans. In his jeans, yes. Quite a natty little shirt he's wearing there. Um, page 17, Mrs. Goldstein knocks at the door and Clark changes awfully quickly for somebody who doesn't have any super speed anymore. Yeah. Or is this just one of those comics artistic license things? Could be. I suppose. Or maybe he has super speed to get all of his clothes, but then gets dressed. Yeah, possibly. Because, yeah. yeah. See, I'm a bit, you know, I'm a bit dubious about that. Uh, Xavier, under the name Xavier, has procured an apartment next door to Clark, but he's not making friends and influencing people because they really don't like him. Mm. His neighbours think he's a bit of a stuck up snob, don't they? Which is fair enough. Did you like this one, Michael? Um, I did, but I thought it was really, really... The premise is a bit dubious. I'll give you that. Yeah. But where they take the story over the next four issues is really cool, and I'll, I'll detail that in a minute. For the most part, though, I love this story. I really do. I can look past some of the, the little glaring inconsistencies. It's a great example of how, under Schwartz's watch, the writers work to develop the character of Clark Kent... And I think the Bronze Age especially did a good job of fleshing him out as a person. And I would argue that in this era, he wasn't disguised as Clark Kent, but rather living two separate lives. Whereas Bruce Wayne and Batman and Peter Parker and Spider-Man are essentially the same people, just a different part of their personality. Clark really was a different person from Superman, despite them being the same person. Through Clark, in this era, Superman learned more about his adopted homeworld, and it was here, I think that he became human rather than post-crisis 
under the tutelage of the Kents. There are issues with this as a single issue, though. Such as, why did the aliens wait until he was Superman? Why not do all of this when he was Superboy? Yeah. Why wait 15 years? How was Xavier supporting himself all this time? Does he have a job? Yeah, or is he, he just independently wealthy? He delivers large crates. <laughs> he delivers large crates with robots in them. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a great job if you can get it. I would, I would totally do that job. Um, did he live at 344 Clinton before Clark? Due to the wonderful prognostications of the aliens, or did he arrange to live here afterwards? There's a little bit of contrivance in it, to be honest with you, but I, I genuinely do love this four-part story. And I almost considered just covering the four parts of this instead of covering different issues. But I changed my mind. Uh, the ads in this issue are the best yet. There's some great ads for monogram models and Revel Snap models on the inside covers. A fantastic evil Knievel chopper bike, trail bike, stunt cycle and dragster ad on the back cover. I had the stunt cycle, which was that one, mm. that you wound up. You know that your um, Crash Bandicoot? Crash Bandicoot. Yeah. Um, there are Dusty and Sky dolls for the girls, presumably a Barbie or a Cindy knockoff, and Mego dolls for the boys, with Superman, Catwoman, Aquaman, Robin, Green Arrow, Batgirl, Joker, Penguin, Riddler, Mixius, Pitalik, Shazam, not Captain, Captain Marvel, oddly, and Wonder Woman. No Batman, but it makes up for it by advertising the Batcopter, Batmobile, and Batboat and Batcycle. Do you know, I really wish I could order these now for that price. <laughs> yeah. That would be awesome. Shazam advertises the Hostess Cupcakes, and there's a great ad for all the various treasury editions of the time. The story would continue for three more issues, with Clark Kent forever, Superman never, in Superman issue 297, Clark Kent get out of my life in issue 298, and the double or nothing life of Superman in issue 299. In part two, Clark abandoned the Superman identity and remained Clark Kent for seven whole days. During the course of this time, he and, Lo- he and Lois get jiggy with it, presumably Clark kept his specs on, stands up to both Steve and Morgan Edge and brings down Intergang. In part three, Superman ditches the Clark Kent persona and devotes seven days to being Superman, making Clark appear to be a total doofus in the process by suddenly ignoring Lois after their week of passion and not turning up to Intergang's trial to testify. And he realises that being a full-time Superman doesn't allow for downtime. In the final part, Zavyar finally makes his move, organising a plot that causes Superman to build up energy that will ultimately explode as he uses his powers. He then arranges to have nine super foes released so that Superman will use his powers and ultimately destroy the Earth. Superman figures out, when wearing clothes from work, that only his home wardrobe has been altered to negate his powers and deduces Zavyar's involvement and prevents the explosion. Uh, it's a great story, very defiantly of this era, but with a nice exploration of the importance of Clark Kent to the Superman legend. There's some sadness that the story ends with a one-page epilogue returning everything to the status quo, as this could have been a good way of creating the more assertive, more George Reeves-esque Clark ten years before the post-crisis reboot, but alas, it was not to be. So Superman saved the day by uh, not blowing up, going shopping spree. Pretty much, yeah. He doesn't really. He's got some clothes in the office at work uh, for an emergency. Of course. And in he, case he ever like wets himself. Yeah. Like in school. Yeah. And uh, what he does is when he puts them on, he realizes he still has superpowers, and that's when he deduces the whole plot. It made sense at the time. Next up, 
a stone cold classic Superman issue 300 Superman 2001 was written by Carrie Bates and Elliot S. Maggie penciled by Kurt Swan and inked by Bob Oxner again mine has a 10p stamp on it mm-hmm. a 10p stamp uh, it was edited by Julie Schwartz and Bob Oscar, and it came out on March 11th, 1976, with a June cover date. The cover, by Kurt Swan and Robert Oxner, is a traditional anniversary cover of the rocket ship launching towards Earth as Krypton explodes with a symbolic Jorel and Lara watching tearfully. Superman stands in the background watching dispassionately. The differences with this one is the cover copy. 2001, it reads, Imagine the Man of Steel coming to Earth as a baby today and growing up in the world of tomorrow. He grew up in Disneyland? <laughs> what do you think of that one? Um, I like it. It's a movie poster cover, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah. is it not meant to be a movie? Yeah, it's an anniversary issue. Yeah. So it works perfectly fine. I have no problem with that. The ass is a bit small, isn't it? Mm. In comparison to his chest. Maybe that's why they made it bigger in... in the, but nobody likes to have a big ass, do they? <laughs> Everyone likes to have a pert ass. Okay. <clears throat> on February 29th, 2001, a UFO crash lands in international waters, and the US and the Russians both launch helicopters to retrieve the cargo, whatever it may be. In their haste, the US pilot and his Russian counterpart completely forget Flight School 101, don't crash into each other, but as they explode over the sea, one man, Lieutenant Thomas Clark, miraculously dives for freedom and salvages the rocket ship. Transported to a top-secret maximum security stockade, scientists try to penetrate the rocket with a super laser with no success, but it opens of its own accord and reveals a toddler. They shoot the toddler in the face with a laser. The kid, clad in red and blue, flies off, looking for food, smashing a few walls and speaking multiple different languages as he does so. He's subjected to more tests and his powers are revealed, and he's given a costume made from the blankets he landed in and called Skyboy. General Garrett, in charge of the boy, notes that he will surely change the history of all mankind. The United Nations demand to see what was in the spaceship, with the Russians particularly worried about indoctrination, but the years spin by. By 1990, the President of the USA, a woman named Wiener, and the Russian Premier Leonov are at odds over the super baby. Whilst neither want war, a shadowy third world party does for their own personal gain. At the complex, the now 14-year-old Skyboy is told that the President has confirmed his existence and it is now his decision whether to turn himself over to the UN. The point becomes moot as the red alert clacks and bellows as the stunned General Garrett announces that the Leonov has launched missiles. Leonov, for his part, seems just as stunned that the US has launched missiles at Russia. Skyboy, saddened by this, and suddenly is nowhere to be seen. It turns out the shadowy third world evildoers have caused all this, and Skyboy is out to stop it. He quickly lassoes all the rockets from both sides and hurls them into the laser beam the US have on the moon. Skyboy then deflects the beam away from its Russian target. Showing no favouritism, Skyboy destroys Russian and US missiles alike, but the Ruskies let loose a deadly gas cloud. Skyboy flies around the cloud super fast and channels it up through the atmosphere where it dissipates harmlessly. Distressed that this was all over him, Skyboy disappears. The two countries, relieved, begin peace talks, but General Garrett passes away. At his funeral, a young boy disguised with glasses takes his surname from the General, Kent, and his first name, Clark, from the soldier that recovered his rocket and vows never to use his powers again. New Year's Eve 2001. 
At Times Square, a four-armed man clad in a purple jumpsuit and yellow briefs, which is quite the look, let me tell you, claims responsibility for saving the world in 1990. He says his name is Mocha. Can't you buy them in coffee shops? (laughs) And that the world will kneel before Mocha. Mocha is a super-powered android controlled by the shadowy Third World Party, and Clark Kent, now a TV anchorman for the Tri-Vision Planet-Wide News, retrieves his supersuit and calls himself Superman, because Skyman would be far too ostentatious. He punches Mocha in the face. Mocha fights back, and the crowd favour him, but Superman hurls lots of rocks at Mocha that even with four arms he finds it hard to avoid. Superman tells the world that Mocha was not responsible and that they need no false gods. Rather, the salvation is within them all. Once again he disappears, but Clark Kent tells an inquiring child that if the world ever needs a hero again, then he will return. Page 1 and 2 are both of a kind, really, and are essentially irrelevant to the plot. The splash, as was usual for the era, was an alternate cover. I'm just going to tape that and keep inserting it as a sound clip, to be honest with you. Um, It sets the scene with copy and images, informing us that this is the tricentennial issue of Superman. This story postulates an alternative future, an imaginary tale by any other name, in which Superman's rocket ship crash-landed on Earth today, well, 1976, and grew up as the Superman of 2001. This is emphasised by people noting that it's a bird, it's a strato-rocket, it's Superman, on the splash, and futuristic domed cities in the background. The fashions have also mutated into bizarre sci-fi suits and pretty odd hats. Yeah, it has to be said. The headgear is uh, is certainly very different. Um, page two is just a standard retelling of the origin with no embellishment or alteration. Apparently, had Krypton continued to live on for a few more decades, it wouldn't have evolved in either fashion or technology, which I think was a wasted opportunity. The creators could have taken this opportunity to create a completely different look for Krypton, even in this one page, but alas, it was not to be. I also presume that this means there is now another Earth in the multiverse, an Earth 2001. Yeah. That never mentioned in Crisis on Infinite Earths? No. Not that I recall. Um, February 29th, which is the date that this story starts, is traditionally the day Superman celebrates his birthday, whilst Clark Kent celebrates his in June. Okay. Didn't know that, did you? No. Just to separate the two. Uh, one of them, I think the February 29th date translated into Earth years as his Kryptonian birth date. Right. So, Kryptonian dates translates into Earth dates... February 29th was Superman's birthday. But Clark Kent adopted the birthday of the day that he landed on Earth, I think. Right. Which was June... Oh, I want to say June 17th. It's around my birthday. Mm. So I think it's June 16th or June 17th, something like that. Uh, Page three. Very interestingly, the American helicopter looks like Airwolf. Yeah. And if you think that's an excuse to play the Airwolf theme tune, you'd be right.
rage thought if those two helicopter pilots could crash into each other then well they shouldn't have been flying at all really because yeah they're competing against each other but surely <laughs> shifting an inch to the side wouldn't have killed them well what is amusing about it is that they're not actually anywhere near each other on the preceding page <laughs> uh, and then on the next page suddenly they're, they're on top of each other yeah and then they crash um, <coughs> what got me about that was alright I'll go with that it seemed really implausible to me that Thomas Clark survived that helicopter explosion. Well, just look at it there, he throws himself out. But how? How is he... He's thrown out from the tail section? <laughs> yeah. How does that work? He's, you don't You don't occupy the tail section of a helicopter. <laughs> that's, that's not how helicopters work. So he's thrown himself out of that as it's blowing up. Why is he not on fire? Oh, he's climbed out of it before and then thrown himself off the tail as it blew up. Yeah, and it's... it's mm, I found that very implausible. I have, yeah. to, I have to say. It could be that the art doesn't quite sell what the, the scripter had in mind. Yeah. You know what he does look like in that panel? What? Though that issue where, he just, where Superman's his headbutt building. <laughs> yeah, he's just chucked himself out of the helicopter. <laughs> yeah. Explosion be damned. Unfortunately, he manages to survive, and he uh, he captures the rocket for the United States, which was which was very nice. Otherwise, we would have had Superman Red Sun. How do you officially capture the rocket? They got it first. That's how it works. Really? Yeah. It's as simple as that. So, so what if say, the the Russians say the name and like shoot? Well, the Russian helicopters blew up, dude. <laughs> There's nobody there to shoot him. <laughs> but had that happened, then the Russians would have won it, presumably. Page five. The rocket ship opens. Yeah. The first thing they do is shoot the toddler in the face. <laughs> which I thought was a bit harsh. <laughs> what if it died? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh... If he hadn't been from Krypton, they'd just cut that poor toddler's head open. Yeah. Which would have been unfortunate. Um, the origin seems to be adhering to the Earth-1 origin rather than the Golden Age stories. In those, Kal-El, without the E was a baby when he landed on Earth with no memory of his home or his parents. In later tellings of the story, more specifically the Silver Age, Kal-El was at least four years old when he was rocketed off. Why this change was made didn't really make much sense to me, but that's primarily because my formative origin story was the 1978 movie, even though I had read the Silver Age origin prior to seeing the film. Um, page six was the weakest page in the, in the story for me because I found this this bit's just entirely too twee mm. hey, that thing? he cooks this turkey yeah it's um, calling him Skyboy just so that us uh, us readers know that this is a different story from the one we've already read and the kid's just too cute for the room mm. isn't he and it's see General Garrett makes the costume with the stylized S which was far too cute Mm. Again, and then they just let him wander around the base and give him cutesy nicknames. I know we live in a far more cynical time now than we did back then, but this was just too cute. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, how did the general and his aide make the super suit? Well, they said they got Superboy to do it. Oh, we had him coaxed using heat beams to cut the threads. Right, well done. Because I remember in the original, Mark Kent had to get Superboy to cut the thread, didn't she? Yeah. Right, okay. I'll cut them some slack on that then. I.e. I was wrong. There are some funny bits, though. Skyboy heats up the turkey by looking at it. And there's no actual heat vision lines. Mm. Like the normal red 
lines coming from his eyes, which I thought was really cool. That was a throwback to the George Reeves TV show where limitations in special effects technology resulted in an effect that arguably works better, I yeah. think. That you don't see the lines, it just heats up. I think that's really good. Um, so good they would adopt it in the post-crisis version of the character. After being asked, you sure he's a baby? By Garrett, the general's aide replied, oh yes sir, he told us. Um, I don't know if that was an intentionally funny line. But it made me laugh. Like, yeah, yeah, he's a baby. He told us he was. Yeah. And you're like, he's a baby, and he's speaking to you. That's not funny. She said she was 18. <laughs> That's a completely different thing. <laughs> I think you should be aware of that right about now. Not only that, but he, he can speak every language, and yet he just goes around saying, "I'm hungry" in every different language. <laughs> well, he doesn't know where he is at this point, does he? He doesn't know he's in America here. He doesn't know where he is, and all he's concerned about is food. Yeah, he's a he's a boy. <laughs> boys, are, boys always think with their stomach. Okay, it's just the way of things. Well, on page seven, yes, see, the USSR only want the US to show Sky Boy with the rest of the world because they're jealous that they that they didn't get to the rocking time. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's just a political posturing, isn't it? Mm. Nothing has changed in many respects. Yeah. yeah. So the rest of the countries are all, oh, oh we don't really care about this. <laughs> yeah. you know, the, rest, the rest of the UN are like, oh, I couldn't give a stuff. So um, the rest of the UN are like, the UN then. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting depiction of the future, did you not think? The Empire State Building... Uh, according to the, the omniscient narrator, has reclaimed the title of tallest building in the world, which of course it wouldn't do, as the Sears Tower and the World Trade Centre would be taller at the time this story takes place, in 1990. By 2001, when the rest of the story is set, it wouldn't even crack the top 10, and now it's not even in the top 20. Really? Tallest building in the world, yeah. Uh, there are floating seaports for non-pollutant aircraft, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah. And the White House has a huge dome over it to protect the president. Like the Pope. <laughs> it's like the Pope-mobile. Yeah. <laughs> um, the President-mobile. The President-mobile, but it's just his house. Or her house. Because rather progressively, they have a, a female uh, president. Mm. Uh, page 8. Whilst the Russians wouldn't be a major threat by 1990, and the USA has yet to have a female president, the shadowy third world power that has emerged could be seen as being um, pretty prophetic. Uh, it says here that Skyboy is 14 in 1990. Why? He landed in 1976 and was already clearly three or four years old. Yeah. So he'd be 18, wouldn't he? Yeah. Not 14. <laughs> <laughs> Unless Kryptonians age at different ages. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. Uh, he's got a hologrammatic entrance to his cave. Yeah. Which I thought was awesome. Hasn't Batman had one of them at some point? Mm. A hologrammatic entrance to the Bat Cave. Which I thought was quite cool. I thought, I thought it was a bit unprofessional how this guy is treating like Sky Boys. He's suddenly like, oh, what's that? He's throwing these cars about. Oh, it's okay. Yeah, that, that's what I meant, really. I mean, I'm not advocating the kind of. Um, military experimentation on him that we saw in was that flashpoint yeah but at the same time this seems very just let him do what he wants yeah doesn't seem that very unprofessional yeah let's let let the strongest person in the world or universe just roam free reign of this this military base (laughs) (laughs) could be a spy for all we know Uh, page 10 I did like the ambiguity 
of General Garrett's line here, this is what happens when petty people have great power, is a really powerful line for a man in his position. He doesn't say man, which would imply that he meant that the Russian premier was the petty one. He said people, Mm. tarring all politicians with the same brush. A very provocative and intriguing stance for the general to take, implying that the years he's been looking after Skyboy have affected him and given him a greater perspective. Skyboy's sadness that this is all about him is well handled without being maudly. Page 11 was, I thought, awesome. Spyboy catches all the rockets and hurls them into a path of a laser beam from a US base on the moon. It's similar to the end of Superman the movie, except here Skyboy has no problem catching two rockets at once. But Superman would obviously have a problem with wouldn't yeah. he? Uh, oddly, this is similar, at least superficially, to the Star Wars defence programme that President Reagan would investigate in the uh, 1980s, having bases on the moon. Okay. So I thought it was quite cool. Reagan wanted to have bases on the moon. He wanted to have the Star Wars de- defence... Was it a net of some description, or was it... Well, I can't quite remember what it was. The Star Wars programme was having orbiting satellites that could attack anywhere on Earth from space. Right. It kind of went nowhere. Page 12, I can buy the laser on the moon, even if it did seem like it was just abandoned there. But the attacking gas cloud was a bit too much. Mm. Because it's like, how fast does it move to get from Russia to the USA so quickly? Who released it? How is it stored? Was it already on US soil? If you can be on soil if you're a gas cloud? Um, added to that, the panel with the cloud engulfed some innocent seagulls. <laughs> yeah. It was unintentionally hilarious. Whereas they just fall out of the sky. Now, I'm not advocating the death of seagulls. But it's not even like they don't die in like glide. They just yeah, drop. The cloud just comes over and they drop out of the sky. That was unintentionally funny. Yeah. It has to be so, which I'm sure wasn't the intent of the story. Um, page 13 as well. General Garrett's passing was rather pat. Although it's a nice touch, we only learn his first name in death. The scene where Clark attends his funeral in the rain is actually rather sweet and again evocative, not only of the death of Uncle Ben in the Spider-Man strip, but also the death of Jonathan Kent in the 1978 movie, although it wasn't raining though. Just nice big panoramic shots of wheat fields. Page 14, whilst the futuristic landscape of 2001 didn't quite happen, although there are cities in the world that do look like this panel, the idea of channels devoted to specific topics, sports, news, films, etc., was quite prophetic. Because we do have entire channels now devoted to specific interests, don't we? Not entirely to that extent. No, but like there's a craft channel and a sci-fi channel and a Mm. news channel, and so if you couldn't give a rat's ass about sport, you just don't buy the sport panels. Mm. That's... You know, that's fair enough. Like us. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, like you said, I did find it really funny that the guy demanding <laughs> yeah. allegiance had the same name as a type of coffee. He <laughs> should have just called himself Latte, shouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> or if there's two of them, hot chocolate and coffee, and together they are the Mocha Twins. <laughs> mocha and Latte. Two bad guys from Planet Zog. Uh, page 15. I do want to know what the shadowy Third World Party was doing for ten years. Yeah. Apart from building a robot, obviously. And how did Clark go about getting things like references and social security numbers? Mm. How did that work out for him, given that he'd never existed? Maybe the military made him for him. Nobody knows where he's been. He snuck off. 
maybe the military made them for him beforehand and then he snuck off. But he took this name on at the funeral. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose he could say, oh, I just got lost in the system and see what happens. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not supposed to be in prison, so, all right. <laughs> <laughs> So you're saying in the future they're all as dumb as in idiocracy? <laughs> yeah. Oh, fair enough. Um, you know, yeah, they are all like pleading allegiance to this to Mocha. Yeah, I was just going to say that. The crowd only has Mocha's word for it, don't they? That yeah. he did all of this. Oh, you like money? Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, and they're quick to go, oh yeah, Mocha, you, 11 years ago you saved the world, excellent, let's follow him. Bow down before him, you're our new saviour. And it's like, you've not really got any proof this guy is who he says he is. Yeah. And you don't know for a fact that he did it. Mm. So I wouldn't be following him blindly. But maybe that's just me. Mm. Maybe I'm just not naturally trustworthy. (laughs) Page 17 and 18 was a very strange ending. The fight at the end was incredibly rushed, taking place in, what, just over a page. Yeah. The bad guys get away. Mm -hmm. He doesn't bring them to justice. He takes Mocha out. But he doesn't take out the shadowy third world conspiracy. Yeah. And yet somehow the world is put on an even keel by Superman, essentially telling the world they don't need a mythical saviour, they only need to have faith in themselves. So they then erect a statue of him. Yeah. That seemed a bit dubious, didn't it? (laughs) I mean, you could even read this ending to be quite controversial in that respect, in, in its message. Um, I have to confess I picked this issue because I love stories set in the future. That is now the past. Yeah. So this was set in 2001, which was over a decade ago, as we're reading this. And this was glorious from that point of view. Despite some of the more twee moments and how some things are just glossed over, I did like that there were no traditional accoutrements of a Superman tale, even an imaginary one. So there was no Lois, no Perry, no Jimmy, no Daily Planet, no Kent, nothing. I to think be- Lex Luthor appeared in it. Where, where was Lex? I'm pretty sure he was part of the shadowy... You think that was Lex? The bald guy. No, because see, without Superman in this continuity, or era, he's no reason to be Lex Luthor, super bad guy. Okay. Because it's it's all Superboy's fault that he's a bad guy, isn't it? If you remember. Yeah. So, I don't don't think that Lex is in it. I mean, he could be, or maybe just bald guys all look the same. (laughs) Colour him green, he's Brainiac. (laughs) It's the way it works. Um... I'll be honest, I think this story would have worked just as well without the suit at all. Yeah. As I felt all of that stuff was just far too cute and a knowing nod to the audience that I don't think this needed. It was thoroughly enjoyable, though. I enjoyed reading it. Uh, some great ads in this issue. The Joker gets a Hostess Fruit Pies ad. There's an ad for Bicentennial Shirts, which looks like it has a young Todd Bridges in it, who would go on to be in Different Strokes. And I think the only member of the cast of Different Strokes who isn't dead which is slightly weird to think about. You don't know who Todd Bridges is, though, yeah. so that means nothing to you. Um, there's a great centre-page ad for two giant specials, Batman and Secret Origins of the Supervillains, as well as a great ad for Superman and Batman from the 30s to the 70s, hardcover. Superman and Batman money banks, which I want. Puzzles and colour forms. There's also a pretty cool Superman belt buckle to celebrate the bicentennial that requires you cut up your comic. So I can't imagine that I will be sending off for that back through time. Mm-hmm. If I could. You could. Send it through a time machine postbox. Yeah, that would that would totally work, wouldn't it? 
What did you think of that one, Michael? I thought it was quite fun. That's it? Yeah, I thought, I thought it was quite fun, but it, it, it is, like, very... Well, once again, it's very silly and, like you said, cute. Yeah, I like that issue. I'm fond of that story for all the reasons I said. I didn't remember it being that twee. Yeah. And I think that that impacted on on my overall enjoyment of it. It by no means sucks, Mm. don't get me wrong, but I'm not a fan of twee. Yeah. As I think we've mentioned before, too cute makes my teeth hurt. Too cute for you. Yeah, I'm not down with any of that. Uh, In June of 1978, for our next pick tonight, Superman celebrated his 40th anniversary with the publication of Action Comics 484. In this first issue of Action, the cover blurber on Superman did this astounding feat. And we see a picture of Action Comics number one in a thumbnail image on the cover. Now, in this extra-length anniversary story, he performs his most sensational feat. Superman takes a wife! doesn't say worry texer how it's a gorgeous cover by jose luis garcia lopez i believe we are now contractually obligated to say perez be his name and dick giordano of superman carrying car in one hand with just married attached to the back with cans and boots trailing from the rear bumper bar in the other lois lane in a clingy wedding dress hurls her bouquet Exactly who's going to catch it at what looks like a good hundred feet above ground is glossed over. And despite the cover being excellent, there are a number of clues as to the topic of this tale, as well as a little bit of obfuscation. 1. It can be seen in the background that Superman and Lois are flying over the Daily Star building rather than the Daily Planet. Listeners to our previous Superman episodes will recall that when Clark Kent started out, back in the hazy days of 1938, he worked for George Taylor at the Daily Star. With no warning, suddenly as of Action Comics number 23, Clark worked for the Daily Planet. Later it was decided, by the powers that were, that this early Superman was actually the Superman of Earth 2, as revealed in JLA 74 from 1969, where it was established there were two Supermen and the DC multiverse. Later it was revealed that the Earth 2 Superman still had the older style S insignia and that this Clark Kent had never stopped working for the star and had, as revealed in JLA 91, 1971, rose to the position of Daily Star Editor. In JLA 107, the Earth 2 Superman would be given grey sideburns, the standard comic book shorthand for getting on a bit, and the Earth 2 Superman's look was complete. Which brings us back to this cover. Whilst it's true the Daily Star logo gives it away to hardened comic fans, the casual reader would genuinely believe that the real Superman and Lois were getting hitched, as the S insignia is covered by Lois's shapely legs, and Superman has obviously been hitting the Grecian for his wedding, as the grey flecks are nowhere to be seen. Still, it's not the first time a cover has been exaggerated for sales, and given that Superman was one of DC's best sellers on the newsstands, then wishing to attract a wider audience is perfectly understandable. What do you think of that cover, Michael, apart from the yellow sky? Yeah, I don't think the thumbnail needs to be, though. You know? No, to be honest, I think it takes away part of the cover. Because you've got a cover in a cover. That's very true. Yeah. You know, you're right, actually. I hadn't even considered I just thought, oh, action cover's number one, and then carried on. But yeah, you don't. It looks more like an advert with a thumbnail on it. I mean, I suppose the fact that he's lifting a car up on the cover of this and action comics number one in itself mm. is paying homage to the cover of Action Comics number one. So yeah, you possibly don't need the thumbnail. Uh, you can rework the text as well, so you still got it the same. Like ever since his debut in Action Comics number he, one, he has done several... many astounding feats. Yeah, yeah, and then leave the other one as it is. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, very good. This one cost twelve p. 
So we're seeing inflation once again. Although it's not stamped on the cover, it is now printed on the cover. But oddly, the barcode is a barcode. So is this... So the British reprints just exactly the same as American ones? It's not a reprint, dude. It's a proper comic. But it's got 12p on it. We've discussed this before. So, okay. They okay. did a print run of comics with UK prices on them. All right. Okay. For sending over here as ballast on ships. All right. And traditionally, these were printed before the American ones to get the presses up and running. Right. So we mentioned all that when we did Marvel 2150. Okay. If you recall. I did me some research. <laughs> I did. Uh, I, I like the cover because I like Jose Luis Garcia Lopez he doesn't look like the stuff that's now overused as adverts I think it looks like earlier work yeah well Luis Garcia Lopez's stuff is pretty much the stuff that's all over Converse even now yeah you can get Converse that's got this guy's art on it Mm. as long as as well as Jim Lee and Joe Shuster so yeah alright fair dude Superman Takes a Wife was written by the much underrated Superman scribe Kerry Bates with pencils and inks by Kurt Swan and Joe Giella. Letters were by Ben Oda, colours by Tatiana Wood and the editor was Julius Schwartz. Once upon a time in Metropolis, long ago and far away, the citizens of Metropolis are shocked by the arrival of the mechanical marauders swooping through the skies, but Superman arrives and destroys them in a mid-air display of awesome aeronautics. However, unbeknownst to the man of tomorrow, he's been monitored by Colonel Future, who, fed up with Superman's interference, vows that if anyone can destroy the man of tomorrow, it's a colonel from the future. Superman makes his way back to the Daily Star after filing his report. After deftly avoiding questions about how he got back from downtown so quickly from Jimmy Olsen, he returns to work, but Lois, ever the snoop, has planted a camera in the snoring. Clark just exited. Alas, the film is useless, but Lois is undeterred. Elsewhere, Colonel Future has roped in renowned criminal mastermind, the Wizard, to rid the world of Superman for good. In exchange, Future will provide the Wizard with the Glastonbury Wand, a relic crafted by Merlin himself. The next day, Clark shoves Lois out of the way of a blaster beam that decimates an armoured car. The CF gang rock up and Superman makes the scene, which makes Lois even more suspicious. The CF gang rob the truck and take off using some kind of one-armed rocket thing, but Superman catches up with them and fuses the rocket packs together. Simultaneously, the wizard conjures his spell, making Superman disappear, and the CF gang fall to the floor, bruised but unharmed. Superman reappears in the wizard's version of a devil's trap, but instead of a pentagram, he's trapped in the S insignia. The wizard says that his magic is from other worlds, other worlds where even Superman wouldn't dare to tread. He casts his spell and Superman is engulfed in magical flame and disappears. The wizard leaves and as the sun sets, a body rises from the burning embers of the S insignia, the body of Clark Kent. Over the next few weeks... Superman's disappearance leads to an increased threat from the underworld, but at the heart of bringing down the downfall, crusading reporter Clark Kent. Slowly, this new, more dynamic Clark gains first Lois's trust, and then her hand. On the honeymoon in the Bahamas, however, their happiness is almost cut short as a submersible featuring Colonel Future's men chases Clark whilst he's out swimming in the Caribbean Sea and gun him down. Oddly, the bullets have no effect, and the villains submerge thinking the machine guns must have jammed. Lois, who witnessed the attack, is so shocked that Clark returns to the shore, not only unaware of the attack, but completely devoid of bullet holes. Her suspicions arisen again. That night, Lois tries to cut Clark's hair, only to have the scissors break. No dummy, she, qu- she quickly deduces that Clark is Superman, but he doesn't know it. 
Upon their return, Lois starts investigating all the claims of responsibility from people concerning Superman's death, finally leading her to the Wizard. He states that ridding the world of Superman has actually ruined his career and led him to being down and out. Lois arranges to not only help the Wizard, but also return Superman to the world, despite the personal loss. To regain the Wizard's confidence and return Superman to the world, Lois arranges a press conference, and the Wizard stops the world laughing at him by returning the Man of Steel's memories. Superman arrives at the ceremony, takes out the Wizard, and hurls the Glastonbury wand up to the moon. Here Lois reunite, and Superman states that Clark has had his marriage, and now it's his turn. At the secret citadel, Superman and Lois are married in a traditional Kryptonian ceremony. Page one. Uh, I bring the reader up to date splash page with the opening credits of the 50s TV show adapted into comics form with but one small difference. This version ends with us being informed that Superman had long ago decided that there was one woman he loved so deeply that he had to have her by his side. The first thing that leapt out to me on this splash page was that Superman's belt buckle has an S on it. Can I notice that? The first thing that leapt out to me was the S is different. Well, it's the Golden Age Superman's S, which yeah. was modified slightly as time went on. It doesn't have a pointy bottom. doesn't have a pointy bottom, because nobody wants that. <laughs> yeah, to be honest. Um, the only place the S on the belt buckle had previously appeared was on the rather famous poster by H.J. Ward that hung in the DC offices for years, and also adorned the cover of the Superman Limited Treasury Edition C31 back in 1974. It would, of course, go on to be the belt buckle in the 2006 movie Superman Returns, but what was apparently on the concept art for Superman's costume for the 1978 movie before Christopher Reeve nixed it in favour of the costume that better resembled the comics version. Interestingly, the art here deliberately seems to have an inker that makes Swan's delicate line work look rougher and more like the Golden Age, and Superman also has a Wayne Boring influence. I quite like that splash pad. It's not that different from the ones we've seen in previous issues we've covered today. It's yeah. an origin recap, but it works, and I quite like it. Page two. Beginning with a brief description of the difference between Earth 1 and Earth 2, we are transported quite humorously from Earth 1 to Earth 2. Humorously, as the first panel starts on Earth 1 and then has a huge oops over it as we bounce over to another dimension. It's a very clean way of handling the transition and explaining the concepts of Earth 1 and Earth 2, and Bates puts us instantly at ease by having the famous it's a bird, it's a plane sequence, but subverts it slightly in much the same way Lois and Clark would do in their pilot episode. You know, I, I really like how the first two panels. Did you? Yeah, but at first I was a bit confused about the Golden Age Superman and Earth 2, though. Until I saw that um, this was released six years before Crisis on Infinite Earths. So my, my, my time was a bit muddled up, though. Yeah, this was long before the Crisis. Yeah, Crisis was only in 85, wasn't it? Mm. So yeah. this is seven years before that. But was this like one of the stories why Crisis was written? Yeah, the the feeling was that having two Supermen running around in Earth 1 and Earth 2 and Earth X and Earth Z and all that stuff was too confusing for people. I thought Crisis created Earth 1 and 2 and X. No, Crisis on Infinite Earths got rid of the multiverse. Yeah. Crisis on Infinite Earths folded all of them into one universe. Hmm. So suddenly there never was a Golden Age Superman and stuff like that. And then Jeff Johns brought it all back. To kill them all again. Yeah, to kill them all again. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> We appreciate that. Uh, page three, the mechanical marauders are very similar to the mechanical monster, the second episode of the Fleischer cartoon series, but Superman fighting robots and knocking the heads off never gets old. No. I'm a big fan of Superman fighting robots. What I like even more is when the Superman fights um, Japanese monsters, <laughs> where it's like Godzilla versus giant 
robot versus <laughs> Superman. Which is cool. Yeah. How can you not love that? Um, I do have to say that the sense of entitlement by the people of Metropolis is shocking. Mm-hmm. We're Superman, they whine. Why isn't he here to stop them? How does the rest of the planet that doesn't have a Superman stop menaces like this? It does give the Guardians a good reason for asking, must there be a Superman in Superman 247? As yeah. this does make the Metropolitans over- seem like they overly rely on him. Mm. Doesn't it? Oh, Mechanical Marauders, Superman, please. Oh, I stumped my toe, Superman. Superman. Oh, Superman. Page four was the first appearance of the Earth 2 villain Colonel Edmund H. Future, head of the Colonel Future mob. Not satisfied with such a self-aggrandizing name, he has the initial CF monogrammed on both his chest and his hat, which would surely give away that he was the bad guy. Given the colour scheme of green hat and robes, red tunic and pants and a yellow bandolier, I can only assume we are all colour blind in the future. Yeah. And we're all, we've all took to wearing Thunderbirds hats. <laughs> which makes... Yeah. Very so we know this guy's from the future because he's called Colonel, Colonel Future. Future. Yeah, right. keep up. <laughs> uh, page five. Bates does a really good job of giving us all the standard Superman bits that new and old readers would be familiar with, and I think my theory that this will have been aimed at casual superfans and readers is borne out, as Bates gives us a Superman fighting robots, the Dual ID, Lois the Snoop, and Jimmy Jeepers, Mister Kent Olsen. Page six. The Wizard is nothing to do with the Fantastic Four villain of the same name. Uh, Also, I don't know if this is deliberate, Bates does a great job with the dialogue. Future speech patterns are actually quite limited, as if he isn't anywhere near as smart as he pretends, and the wizard is quite pretentious and smug Hmm. throughout most of his appearance, which I thought was a very subtle writing thing. I like the wizard. I like the wizard. He reminded me of somebody else, and I can't think who it is. He looks, to me, he looks like the Phantom Stranger. He does look a bit like the Phantom Stranger. Or the twirling moustache. Hmm. Yeah, and he's got no eyeballs either, Mm. which was familiar in some way. Uh, The wizard turning the room upside down led to a great line. Let us down! I mean up! Mm. Which I I did actually laugh at, I don't mind saying. I like how it's just like that for the next couple of panels. And even from the exterior shot, it's upside down. (laughs) You know, I hadn't noticed that, yeah? The exterior shot of the building's upside down. Very good. Um, Page seven. If the wizard really did turn the room upside down, why are all all the clothes not falling upwards? How is the hat staying on the head? Maybe he didn't turn the room upside down, he just made them perceive that it's upside down. Well, was it an illusion? Yeah. So if the wizard can rid the world of Superman himself, why has he done it before then? Um... I mean, granted, it's, it's nitpicking, yeah. isn't it? But, you know, it's questions worth asking, I think. Uh, the Glastonbury wand is fictional, but the small town of Glastonbury is in Somerset in the UK. Mythologically, it's associated with Joseph of Arimathea and the Holy Grail, and plays a large part in the legend of King Arthur. It boasts the oldest above-ground Christian church in the world, and has one of the oldest known engineered roads in the world, with tree ring dating it at 3807 BC. It has a large pagan and New Age population, but is best known for the world-famous Glastonbury Music Festival, which runs around June every year. Apart from last year. Apart from, well, they have years off every now and again, don't they? Yeah. So keep the locals happy so they don't moan Hmm. Uh, page 8 Lois gets a good line about Clark having good posture despite having no spine which I thought was quite funny if Mm. a bit bitchy 
<laughs> um, oh, who noticed that Lois is a bit bitchy? Yeah, Lois is... Golden Age world. Yes, she, she was quite the bitch in many occasions. Page 9. Clark changing in the alleyway and being mugged is hysterical, simply because the mugger tries to knock him out with a cosh, but Clark doesn't even notice, mm-hmm. and the guy knocks himself out on Superman's elbow. Yeah. How did he not notice that was happening? He's supposed to have super senses. Maybe he did, but he, he knew He just didn't no care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right, I suppose. Uh, page 10. The rocket pack blaster things didn't make much sense to me. If they only have them on one arm to enable them to fly away, wouldn't it be really difficult control? As you'd have to keep them centrally pointed. And you must have really strong arms. Yeah, well, and also, well, any deviations, that you just end up swirling in a big <laughs> circle, wouldn't you? Yeah. As futuristic flying devices go, one-armed rocket packs seem a bit stupid to well, me. Well, maybe in the future everyone's single, so they have uh, arms strong enough to fly rocket packs. With. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, I can understand them not wanting to go for rocket boots, but... Wouldn't they, it would have been the same problem, though. They'd burn their hands. Well, if they had rocket boots on both legs, at least there's a, a vague explanation there as to how they keep level. Hmm. But if you've only got one thing on one arm... And that's propelling you. Yeah. That is just going to send you spinning in circles. That, that, that just really didn't make any sense to me, to be honest. I quite liked on page 11 that the wizard trapped Superman in the S emblem, similar to trapping demons in a pentagram, which I thought was a nice touch, because we've seen tons of episodes of Supernatural where they do stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, page 12, Superman's allergy to magic is oft scoffed by fans but it isn't specifically a weakness inherent to Superman in the DC universe everyone's susceptible to magic so Superman's just no exception I never understand why certain people use this as a stick to beat on the man of steel mm. when Batman's every bit as vulnerable to magic as he is yeah it just it's never Superman's vulnerable to magic that's just stupid but in the DC universe everyone would be vulnerable to magic is that why there's Captain Marvel though because he is Superman but is of magic he is of magic yeah I think so. But Captain Marvel wasn't originally a DC character. DC bought him. So were Charlton characters not originally DC, then? No. Alright. And he was a Fawcett character. Was he? Yeah, the Charlton characters was Blue Beetle and that lot. I thought they were the same. No, different no. company. But they ended up being DC characters, no, right. eventually. Just like they bought out Wildstorm. Essentially, yeah. Uh, page 13 through 14, Clark's rise to prominence as a more courageous star reporter is a character beat that has been played before, and will be again. But it's something that I always quite liked as a kid, and I like even more as an adult. Clark has always been the disguise at this point, the straw man that Superman uses to walk amongst his people, like Henry V. But under the editorial ship of Julius Schwartz, the civilian life of Clark was highlighted. More in the private life of Clark Kent, but there were specific stories that show that Clark, had he not been Superman would have been every bit the man of courage and action as his alter ego. That he elected to keep Clark out of the spotlight and held back arguably did chari- the character of Clark a disservice. But you can understand why Superman doesn't want to draw attention to himself in his civilian guise. The wedding ceremony on page 14 has Jimmy Olsen performing best man duties. I'd have loved to go to the stag night. But that was funny. Well, it's the Earth 2 version of Lois Lane's elder sister Lucille and her meddlesome daughter Susie are in attendance as bridesmaids. On Earth 1, certainly post-crisis, Lucy Lane is younger than Lois. Lois's niece, Susie Tompkins, first appeared in Action Comics 39 in 1943 and went on to appear a number of times as an utterly hilarious comedy child who got into scrapes, teamed up with Mixius Pitalik and generally got on Superman and the reader's nerves. 
Aside from a few appearances in Superman Family in the late 1970s, she thankfully disappeared from Superman mythology. Some people dislike Jimmy Olsen, some can't stand Steve Lombard. I detested Susie, even as a child. I wanted her to just go away. Page 15. Colonel Future's gang seems to consist of two men. Yeah. I'd be having a recruitment drive if I was him. If it's just the same guys, like, they've got out of prison and then he's gone sending them off again. Just the same two fellas all the time. Unless it's like in the Batman TV show where they have two henchmen until it's time for the fight. Yeah. And then three others will just appear from nowhere, get involved in a fight, Batman will punch them all out and then it'll go back down to being two. Yeah. Could only afford two actors and a bunch of stuntmen. Uh, page 16, I actually thought stretched credibility somewhat that Clark doesn't even notice he's been riddled with machine gun fire yeah. now we've, we've established that a mugger he doesn't notice that but alright but machine gun fire come on even Clark must notice that he's been machine gunned well not even that he, I mean, he can't even hear them yeah and it struck me as, as a slightly silly and Lois does seem a bit dense thinking that having been riddled with bullets he'd be able to swim all the way back to the shore mm. and walk up to her with no ill effects because she's like oh he, he must he must be in a stupor no <laughs> he'd be he'd be in holes but you know whatever little bit of bronze age silliness um also has Clark not found it odd that in the amount of time he's not been Superman he's never had to shave or cut his hair maybe he not found well, that strange would Clark not have noticed the missing hair in the morning considering how much Lois is about to cut off uh, yeah. I mean, uh, at least it beats her shooting him. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Even if it was blanks. Um, Clark, page 17, Lois realises that Clark doesn't know he has superpowers, but does still have them, which is fine. But it seems to me that the idea that Superman can have sex has been dealt with here in a far less salacious manner than in the recent GMS graphic novel Earth 2, Volume 2. Once again... I'm forced to ask, are we really more sophisticated now as an audience, or just more juvenile with the pretense of sophistication? I think it's not even that. I think it's more of the need to know everything about everything. Yeah, because here it's, they're married now, and are sharing a bed together. That's all you need to know. Yeah. We don't need to go into it in minute detail about how he's not blown the top of her head off. I'll make an entire story about it. Yeah, which, you know... People are just obsessed with minutiae now, don't they? Uh, Lois tracking down the wizard does seem rather quick, but she is a great reporter with a supernatural instinct, and 14 pages of her running down false leads would have been really dull. Mm. So I'll cut him some slack on that. On page 18, the final three panels of this page are really quite sad. Even if the wizard's fall from grace doesn't really make a lot of sense, magic-based villains always made me pause. If you can magic yourself anywhere, why not simply magic yourself into a bank vault, stuff a rucksack full of money and then leave? And every time you find yourself running low on cash, just do the same thing in a different town with a different bank and just take enough that you can live comfortably on but not enough to attract attention. They're not play the whole deal up. You can't use magic for personal gain. He's a bad guy! That's the whole point of using magic is well, yeah. for personal gain. But here he's used for hire. Well, yeah, but see... You know, if you felt really bad about it, open a bank account in the bank where you've ripped her off and deposit money back in under your own name. Added irony. <laughs> It seems like too much effort to me faffing around with superheroes if you can do all of this. Mm. Doesn't it? 
Nevertheless, the scene where Lois kisses Clark farewell as she realises that the world needs Superman more than she needs her husband is actually very adult and quite heartbreaking. Granted, the explanation given here for what the wizard did doesn't actually match what he actually did earlier on in the issue, but whatever. Maybe the writer forgot what he'd said. Page 20, Clark disappears from his bed and Superman emerges from the S insignia that the wizard created, which is nice, but glosses over what exactly the wizard did again. Lois explains it as the magic forcing the Superman personality to cease to exist, and the Clark Kent persona took over subconsciously. But in the actual ceremony, the wizard made Superman disappear, as if he'd either banished him or disposed of him forever. There was no inkling the wizard had only submerged his personality. Also, does this mean Lois gave away that Superman is still around, but with no memory that he's Superman? Because surely that would mean that the wizard's spell was actually a failure, as it didn't rid the world of Superman. That won't have boosted his confidence. <laughs> Superman swatting the wizard like a fly is amusing, but surely he's stating that he's putting the wand of Glastonbury on the moon will not go down well with the British Museum, where it was stolen from. It's not your property, Superman. What do you think Superman would be like if Captain Britain discovered the the scepter of Peacock's Bill, made him drink coffee instead of tea, and so he hurled it to Mars instead of returning it to the Washington Museum? Uh, I don't think they'd take too kindly to that, would they? We want our Glastonbury one back, thanks, Superman. It's part of our heritage. (laughs) Can we have it back, please? I don't remember giving you permission to put it on the moon. (laughs) Anyway, I'm thinking too much into that. Yeah. One would imagine. Uh, page 20, the scene with Colonel Future needing his medicine after Superman's return is slightly campy. Mm-hmm. Do you think? He gets away at the end, though, as well. Again. Yeah. So another issue that we've picked it out with the bad guy gets away at the end. Morally ambiguous much? Page 21, as mentioned when we covered the super key to Fort Superman, the Golden Age Superman did not have a fortress of solitude, rather the secret citadel, first seen in Superman issue 17 from 1942. And in lieu of a letters page there's a text page detailing the differences between the Earth 1 and the Earth 2 supermans supermens super yeah they'd probably be mans they would wouldn't they they'd be supermans not supermen because it's plural of singular isn't it yeah yeah well done I like that page though I haven't read it have you not no oh, I thought you'd have been fascinated by that <coughs> Earth 1 and Earth 2 and all that multiverse gubbins no, I'm not actually read that. Well, I thought it was really good. Thoroughly enjoyed that. What did you think of that story, Mikey Boy? Um. Um. No, I liked it more of a Clark Kent Lois Lane story. Right. Yeah. See, it, I, I preferred that more than the, the Superman wizard story behind it. Did you? Yeah. The Clark Kent Lois Lane stuff was more interesting to you. Yeah, I found it very similar to um, the widening Gaia. Well, I preferred the bits where it was just Batman and Silver Saint Cloud, well, Bruce and Silver Saint Cloud. To the Batman stuff? Yeah. You're getting old, dude. <laughs> you're starting to like the relationship stuff. You've got to start watching soap opera soon. I want to see Superman do super stuff. Yeah. Because I'm still 14 <laughs> in my head. Um, I really like this story. The art's very reminiscent of the more scratchy Golden Age, and it feels like a genuine continuation of some of those later era tales rather than the earlier ones. It shows how DC could really progress their characters on Earth 2, but still have the evergreens over on Earth 1, giving them both huge gobs of cake and allowing them to stuff their faces with it. The marriage of Lois and Clark is to me a natural development in the character and deepens the character of Lois Lane considerably, which I know is a drastic 180 in my opinion of the Spider-Man, 
marriage, but Spider-Man isn't Superman. Having a Lois that is in on the secret actually makes it more fun. Bates does a good job of giving the reader all the information they need to follow the story, but both the villains, Colonel Future and the Wizard, are rather lacklustre. I picked this story because it showed that Lois and Clark could be married and it could work well before 1994, and that by having it you don't weaken the characters, you actually make them stronger. Again, I have the actual issue for this one, but it's quite disappointing ad-wise. You can have powerful muscles, fast, and Wonder Bread is giving away free Close Encounters trading cards. Aquaman advertises Hostess Twinkies, and there are lots of adverts for bikes, because kids were obviously a lot healthier in uh, 1978. They could eat their Twinkies and ride a bike. They could, so they were getting exercise while they ate the Twinkies, instead of stuffing their face with Twinkies and playing on computer games all day. Mm -hmm. The adventures of Mr. and Mrs. Superman would be followed up in a series of backup strips in both Superman and Superman family. Finally tonight, and I'm presuming some people are going to be saying, thank God, because I think this is probably touching the longest episode we've ever done, a short, sweet tale from Superman 270, cover dated December 1973. One of the initiatives introduced by Schwartz when he took over was to expand and develop the character of Clark Kent. To this end, in addition to giving Clark a bigger slice of the pie in the stories themselves, he also introduced the backup strip, The Private Life of Clark Kent. The strip, like most of the backups, was sporadic, but always welcome when they appeared. Entitled I Can't Go Home Again, it was written by Elliot S. Maggin and drawn by Murphy Anderson. A rental car wends its way through the streets of Smallville, and Clark Kent parks up at the home he shared as a boy with Ma and Pa Kent. A porter cabin for the Pete Ross Associates Geological Survey Team is parked outside, as Clark ponders the letter that informed him of the plan to demolish his old house and make way for a new interstate. Pete Ross himself is in the van and has recommended the interstate run through the Kent house as a favour to Clark, as Pete feels Clark is holding onto it in case there is something inside that could reveal his secret. Pete notices the door to the Kent house is open and rushes in to find Clark in pensive mood. Pete still thinks he's doing Clark a solid and whitters on about how they are going to demolish his home and Clark's all, that's Pete nice, and Pete realises that Clark hasn't sold the house for any other reason than Superman is a sentimental slob. Clark and Pete go out back to where they used to find old Indian arrowheads and Clark takes Pete to an old cave where the paintings on the wall reveal that the remains of an ancient Indian civilization are underneath the Kent house. Pete doesn't understand the paintings but an expert confirms what Clark knows and the interstate is diverted. Didn't they have lots of cave paintings and Indian burial grounds in Smallville as well? Did they? In one of the seasons, I seem to vaguely recall. Did that not just make the house haunted? If Superman was a horror film... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It would be, wouldn't it, built on an ancient burial ground? Yeah. Yeah, like Poltergeist. Uh, Page one. I know what you're thinking. And you're right. But Andrew, you're thinking. Why does Clark have a house? Everybody knows Clark was raised on the Kent farm. Well, yes, this is true, but in later Superboy stories it was established that the Earth-1 Jonathan and Martha Kent sold the farm and moved into town buying and running a general store. I don't know if this was first established in Superman 146 from July 1961, the story of Superman's life, but that's where I first read it. So. See, what I knew was that the incorporated of the two together they lived on the farm but still had the store. When did they do that? I'm, I'm pretty sure I remember it from Ulster. Yeah, maybe they did an all-star Superman. Do you know, I don't remember. You could be right about that. Or he incorporated both elements. He may very well have done that. Pete Ross, 
As you may have guessed from the synopsis, was a childhood friend of Clark's in Smallville and found out his secret ID in a story in Superboy issue 61, entitled Pete Ross's Super Secret. Clark did not know that Pete knew. Hilarity ensued. The title is made out of a white picket fence surrounding the Kent home, which is a nice touch. It's also an allusion to the posthumous Thomas Wolfe novel, You Can't Go Home Again. I do like that the word again as well is, is put back because it's the gate. Mm. I just thought was, that was a lovely little artistic touch. Murphy, Murphy Anderson's art in this is, is great. Um, page two, it's a bit of a stretch on Pete's part as well as a little bit interfering to assume Clark hasn't sold the house due to being Superman. There are any number of reasons Clark has held on to the old homestead. Maybe he's saving it for his kids. Yeah. I do love Pete's 70s sideburns and quiff, though. Hmm. Who's he want to be, Elvis? There was one panel where I was convinced he had a mullet just because the, the background colour right next that to one? his head was... No, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was later. Right. But it looked like he had a mullet just because of the colour behind him. Right. I, I do like the 70s sideburns. I thought they were really cool. Hmm. Um, I also love the art. Murphy Anderson's art and this is exceptionally well detailed. It's very good, very impressive. I don't think I've seen a lot of Murphy Anderson penciling and inking. He normally just inked Kurt Swan, as far as I recall. Page two. Pete notices the door to the Kent house is open, but doesn't notice there's a convertible parked behind his porter cabin. Nor does he notice the convertible pulling up, despite the camper porter cabin being full of windows. Mm. Likewise, Clark Kent, who is Superman, didn't notice the name Pete Ross printed in large red friendly letters all over the porter cabin. Yeah. I thought that was a bit odd. Mm. You think you'd have pick, picked up on that, wouldn't you? Yeah. And gone, oh, Pete Ross. Or maybe he wasn't looking at it because he was all distant and... Misty-eyed. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. On page three, Clark's just lounging around in his old house. I just love Superman lounging. Yeah. I find it funny. I don't know why. I just do. Yeah, <laughs> well, when he should be out saving the day, he's just yeah, lounging just about. Got his feet up on the on the ancient uh, antique table there. Yeah. Martha would smack his face for that, probably. <laughs> I do quite like it, though. Um, page four, I like that throughout this entire section of the story, Clark is distracted and consumed by memories. It's a lovely little touch and a wonderful counterpoint to the Silver Age where Clark was all about Krypton and Jor-El and poor Jonathan and Martha Burley got a look in. Hmm. What I found... I'm not up to scratch with Superboy, but I find it confusing why he has a lab in the basement. He just did, he had a lab in, underneath the house. Hey, why didn't Jonathan and Martha Kent notice that? They did. Did they? Yeah, they, they encouraged him to use the lab. Alright. He used the lab as his, like, secret back cave thing. And he got in and out of the house through a tunnel. He made a tunnel out of the house. Oh, like what Batman had, where he had, like, yeah. the, like a shed over in the distance. Yeah, right, right, pretty right. much the same thing. He, he got out of the house by flying through a tunnel, yeah. and then he came out at the other end of town, so people didn't know that he was Superman. But doesn't that play with the whole thing that we said a few weeks ago, which is because Superman doesn't mean he's super clever as well? Uh, in the pre-crisis, he was super clever. Right. He had super smarts and a super brain. He was super in every respect. Not fair enough. Just ask Lois. Especially after that last story. <laughs> oh, let's not go on that. We're, we're turning into Kevin Smith. <laughs> um, page five. Clark knowing all along about the ancient civilization, but leading Pete gently down the path to realise it himself, I thought was a lovely little character beat. Especially seeing as Clark doesn't realise that he's basically given Pete what he wanted. Pete thought he was doing his friend a favour. And when he realises that Clark doesn't want to sell the house for no reason than he just doesn't want to sell the house, Clark gives him the out that he needs. 
There was something wonderful about the structure of this story, with neither party realising what the other was doing, despite them both being altruistic about it. Mm. Which I thought was quite quite nice. Uh, page six. It's the ending of the story that makes this for me. Pete quickly gets an expert in, and the house is declared a National Historic Site, giving Pete a way to help out his friend and fix a mistake that he didn't actually know he'd made. It's the ending I found particularly moving, though. Pete quotes Kurt Vonnegut by saying, we must be careful what we pretend to be, because someday we may find out that's what we are. When he realises that Clark has become as genuine a human being as Superman. This is where the Bronze Age always scored for me, and where I suppose, although I didn't realise it at the time, the post-crisis revamp didn't bother me too much. Superman hadn't been disguised as Clark Kent for some time, and this story, along with the other private life of Clark Kent strips, proved why I always liked Clark just as much as I liked Superman. The private life of Clark Kent ran sporadically from January 1972 to July 1982 as a backup strip in both Superman and Action Comics before finally landing a permanent home in the anthology book Superman Family. What did you think of that one, Michael? Um, I'm not sure, really. You know, I love that one. I thought that was just a really sweet little... Like the sweetheart Superman forgot from last week. Yeah. It's a story entirely carried, entirely carried by Clark. Well, I think if there was more of it... No, no, I like the brevity of it. It's six pages and done. Yeah. And you realise that Clark's got this attachment to his old home. Mm. And suddenly he's not an alien Kryptonian anymore. This is some of the stuff that bugs me about the current imp- interpretation of him. So he's yeah. an alien. So he has to be aloof and an outcast. Clark wasn't really an outcast. Mm. He, he never really enhanced his alienness, as far as I remember. But mainly because I remember reading stories like that. Yeah. So The 70s is a largely neglected period in Superman history, but as someone who was there, it was a good time to be picking up Superman, and there's some great stories out there in the back issue boxes for you to discover, and I hope that we've whetted your appetite in that direction. Oh, I need to say sources, don't I? Uh, Back issue 62, which is an excellent, excellent issue of back issue. I managed to get a paper copy, thanks to eBay. Uh, The Superman, the great Superman book by Michael L. Fleischer, the Krypton Companion, by Michael Urie Superman in the 70s Kryptonite Nevermore Superman The Complete History and the website www.supermanhomepage.com was all very useful in researching this episode as usual Mike's Amazing Worlds of DC Comics is invaluable in helping us with release dates and such next time on an all new episode it's the 80s Ah, another quartet of comics, largely double-sized. From Superman 400, The Living Legends of Superman. From Action Comics 544, A Double Bill, Luther Unleashed and Rebirth. From Superman Volume 2, Issue 10, The Super Menace of Metropolis. And finally, from Superman Volume 2, Issue 12, Lost Love. On sale, I say on sale, it's not like we charge, is it? Uh, Next Thursday, it's a date. And I think that's probably going to end up being a nearly three hour episode. Yeah. <laughs> Michael's flagging again. I'm not flagging. Okay. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. Goodbye.
Michael Hans to do production. And all opinions expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew, and you probably shouldn't take them too seriously. All music and sound clips used in the show are for illustrative and review purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Andrew and Michael make no money from the production of this show, which is a source of much consternation. New episodes drop every Thursday over at twotruefreaks.libson.com which is spelt L-I-B-S-Y-N. Old episodes of the show are also archived on the Two True Freaks internet radio feed at twotruefreaks.libson.com. If you wish to communicate with Michael or Andrew or any of the things they have discussed about on the show, you can email them at heykidscomics, all one word, at virginmedia.com. If you wish to view the covers of the comics we've talked about this week, we have a website www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com If you are so inclined but don't actually want to drop us an email but just wish to ask us a quick question or say hi, you can Facebook friend us. We're using Hey Kids, all one word, as the first name and comics as the surname. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.